Sony slashes live service. And the nominees are... Well, hello and welcome to Triangle Square on PlayStation Podcast. While Chris uh, reenacts our opening, our intro, <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. If this is your first time joining us, then uh, stick around. Welcome. We hope that you enjoy the show. Uh, we will eventually be getting into all the stuff that's happened this week. And you know, it's a weird time of the year where there's a lot happening, but there's also the uh, anticipation of what's about to happen so we'll be talking about playstation portal finally coming out and getting some uh the reviews embargo being lifted we're gonna talk about some stuff with marvel's wolverine that's come and hit the internet embracer group is facing some more troubles and of course the game awards are going to be discussed here since we have all of our nominees and can vote but before we get into all that we're going to honor this show with a time-honored tradition of checking in with myself brett beck and my co-host Joining me every week, Mr. Chris Figs. Chris, first and foremost, how you doing? Oh, just dandy. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great since I remembered that I'm supposed to introduce you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I almost skipped a segment technically, but that's okay. Chris will forgive me. Um, there is a small chance, just to throw it out there, uh, Chris's computer is acting like a, a, a 1997 computer. Yeah. So we are not actually sure what's going to happen here, but we're just rolling with it. Uh, but with that in mind, Chris, let's get these people, uh, let, let's tell them what we've been up to, what we've been playing, so they can either find something new or hear our words on games that they've either been playing or have been curious about playing uh, and see what you've been playing. So what have you been uh, loading up on the old console this week? Um. A decent amount of stuff, actually. Um, most of the week with Control. I've been continuing on the uh, Alan Wake 2 journey, so that's been interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Control. I, it's weird. I like playing it, but sometimes I don't. I don't know how to explain it. Well, unfortunately, Chris, we are already facing your... Uh, it's like your internet on your computer is also from 1997. So that was weird. Uh, I heard almost all your words in about four seconds at super speed <laughs> as it tried catching me back up. Well, let's see if I can decode your computer's 1997 language. Okay. Okay. Go. Let me, let me go into windows 97 mode. Beep, blorp, gleep, gloop. Okay. Um, you are playing control as you continue to go down your Alan Wake thing and you are at odds with it because sometimes you're enjoying playing it and sometimes you're not. That is actually exactly correct, yeah. Here's the thing. Almost all those words were clear, but they were just coming at me like Eminem in the middle of Rap God. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I mean, can I, I know that, of course, we're trying because Control is really important to Alan Wake, too. I think that's very important to, to throw out here. So it, we're, even though Control is a relatively older game, we are not necessarily in the means of trying to spoil it. But as best you can, do you think you can kind of quantify what it is that's making you like it when it is hitting for you? Yeah. I and what it is that's making it not land for you when that's happening? I think... Um experiencing the story of control is really cool because the story and, so, and environments of control are really neat. But I think like traversing the oldest house, I don't like doing um, the map is God awful where it's like, it's taken in like, it doesn't check. It doesn't tell you where to go very well. So it gets a little frustrating because the building is supposed to be a maze, 
but I don't know that I think it's super fun to play a game in a maze. I got you. Well, I know that you messaged me too, and you were thinking, uh, you're saying like, it's so hard to navigate and it's, it's a weird complaint for the game because I don't, I don't disagree with it, but at the same time, it's technically what the game is designed to do. Yeah. Like the oldest house is meant to feel <laughs> sort of like this ever shifting puzzle that becomes whatever it needs to at the moment that you need it to be that. Well, but then that's okay. Hold on. That's fundamentally that wouldn't that fundamentally be in, in opposition to what you said of that's how it's, it's supposed to be well, a maze. Cause wouldn't, if the, what the I mean is pushing me forward, if the bureau is pushing me forward, then it should make my path easier and at the at the very least, I think the biggest problem is just the map is not good. Oh, don't get me wrong. The, the actual map that you use to navigate has issues. Yeah. That's true of almost any 3D game that tries to have like a Metroidvania-ish styled map. I don't think lands that off very well, and that's unfortunate. But with that in mind... <sighs> Look, I know you've had that complaint about uh, Jedi Survivor, or at least Jedi Fallen Order, and I think it's a valid complaint. I guess what I'd say is, at no point did I ever feel like that was stopping me from playing or really enjoying the game. Like, yes, I could have enjoyed it more had navigation through this map system that you chose to make be easier, but clearly it's a problem throughout a lot of the industry and just how to adequately show a map of open corridors, because like, what are your options with a map? You have either the Skyrim approach where it's just the top down the entire world and you just see where you are, but you have no extra context. You don't know if you're in a in a certain like offshoot pipe, like cavern or something. Whereas this game is actually trying to give you, okay, well, you're in this leg of this section in here. And I don't think it always lands right, but I think it approximates it close enough to where it's cumbersome and slightly annoying. But at the end of the day, you can get the information that you need. And I'd even argue that it's better than the map in Fallen Order. Um, but it's not ideal. But I guess, you know, some of it is, and this is technically, this is a hit to the game. But I find that in those games, I tend to just learn the map as if I were just actually in real life navigating it. Like, okay, I got to remember different touchstones of how to get to certain places by being able to look for landmarks that I recognize and that give me some spots. And that's a little harder in a game like Control where the oldest house kind of looks incredibly monotonous at points and then also (laughs) incredibly unique at others. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, in the end, I think... It is the way the game was designed. I think for me, the problem is the game doesn't telegraph what you're supposed to do necessarily. At least it's not for me where there was even one point where the place I was supposed to go was right next to my character and I didn't realize it. (laughs) Yeah. So I ran like halfway back the map and I was like, this doesn't make sense. Ran back and only by happenstance did I happen to notice that the wall looked a little weird. And then I'm like, I turned, I'm like, oh, that's a whole corridor. That's where I'm supposed to be. So I don't know. I just think it's, (laughs) I think the game's story is more interesting than playing the game. I think that just in general, 
I think even okay. Jesse's powers and all this kind of stuff that happens and stuff with the gun, I'm like, oh, this is all fun, but I'm starting to feel like the combat is just blocking me from seeing the content I want to see. And especially when like I was never sitting here like, I really want to play Control. I'm playing Control because I really want to play Alan Wake 2. That's fair. Yeah. I'm like halfway through this game kind of like, I think I just would rather watch this on YouTube and play Alan Wake. But I think I'm closer to the end. I think I'm close to the end. I'm on the mission yeah. where it says find someone. If that, you know, if you know where I, I'm I think I know about. you're talking so. about. Well, look, to kind of wrap up where I'm at on this, I think to some degree, Remedy have always somewhat faced this problem. Yeah. And that's, it's a little unfair, but I tend to find that some people are more forgiving of their combat design than others, and it depends very heavily on the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that almost everything you've said about control is true of Alan Wake. The only reason I was able to push through and beat Alan Wake is because its premise, its story, and its novelty <coughs> all all pushed past the fact that I found the combat to be incredibly cumbersome and annoying. Well, so here's uh, the Definitely thing. by the end of the game. So I get where you're coming from just in a different game. And I know you just literally beat Alan Wake and did all that. <laughs> yeah, well, that was what I was going to say is not that I don't disagree with you. I mean, I yeah. do a little bit because control is much faster paced and, you know, a little bit quicker, but it does. Agreed. Actually, I, I think control actually feels great. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised. I, I think it does it's a very feel great. It yeah. does feel great. I think the combat's just just kind of rinse and repeat. It's like, oh, there's these hiss, and there's hiss that explode, and there's hiss that kind of just breathe fire. I don't know, you know. So you know, it's is not, it the it's, problem it's, that it's, all it games have nice. where the the loop is the the loop is effective, but you've got you've already grown tired of the loop. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. that. Because it's it's again it's it's getting lost all the time. I think the fundamental difference in why it's easy to get over in Alan Wake is Alan Wake directs you exactly where to go. <laughs> Very straightforward. Like, so Be I think prepared if, for two. <laughs> yeah. If Two's you a little were, different. If you were doing, if you had controls map in Alan Wake two, the game would be one of the worst games of all time. <laughs> yeah. Or not Alan Wake uh, two, but in Alan Wake one, if that's how you played that game, it would be terrible. You know, so I think that's part of the problem is the oldest house is just kind of uh, it's a cool environment. And that's the thing Mm -hmm. about control. Everything is cool as hell. But playing it gets monotonous. And I think the Dark Souls level, the Dark Souls thing they have going on, the bonfire, basically control point. That's what I'm trying to say. The control point thing, it takes you back there. And then sometimes it resets everything you just did. If you die, sometimes it doesn't. But most of the time, the enemies are going to be there, and that stuff's all fine and good. But again, it's preventing me from getting to the part that I'm actually enjoying of the game. So I think I've just landed on it. What, the gameplay loop for you has started to involve getting lost. Yeah. And so that's the problem is that the gameplay loop isn't able to be effective in the way it was intended to for you because getting lost has become so prevalent that the gameplay loop is fight, beat some hiss, get confused on where I'm at, try to navigate to where I'm at, fight some more hiss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
And then occasionally you get lucky to get some story interwoven in there. Look, I think it's a completely reasonable uh, critique of the game. I, I didn't have nearly as much of a problem with it. I was able to very quickly get past it. And I really stopped relying on the map, except for the very end, uh, whenever I was doing some trophy cleanup, where <coughs> I don't know that I would have been able to find some of these places without being able to kind of study the map to figure it mm-hmm. out. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think Remedy have this big thing of they are excellent at um, designing stories, characters, and atmosphere and mood. Um, yeah. And I think that they've been a little more scattershot on how combat has completely landed out. I think it'd be impossible to not give them credit for just how game like revolutionary um, bullet time was. And I'm not saying that they're the immediate like you know, but they're the people that popularized it. One way or the other. Uh, and that's been so influential that it's hard to say that they don't know how to do combat. But I think that their strengths really... Uh, combat's fine, but their combat's always outshined by everything else, usually. There's some really interesting examples where that's a different. I actually think combat in both Control and Quantum Break are really good. I find combat in Alan Wake 2 to still be a little cumbersome, but everything else about Alan Wake 2 is so freaking good that it's... It's hardly even an issue. Like exploration is a lot better, uh, way better, way more interesting. There's more stuff going on. Uh, I think what it's doing from a thematic standpoint of how it's, I can't, I can't even really say too much, but how it's choosing to weave in and out of certain story decisions um, has been incredibly interesting. And since this was advertised, the how it bounces back and forth between playing as Saga and or Alan has been very good. So I'm excited for you to get to two. But, uh, you know, Corey uh, in the Discord had mentioned, uh, if you want to join the Discord, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on podcast services, hop down to the description, jump in there. But Corey was saying, do you have to play Alan Wake 1 to um, appreciate Alan Wake 2? And I think the answer is you have to be... Um, you have to be knowing of the events of Alan Wake one, but I don't necessarily think you have to play Alan Wake one. There's one very big benefit though. I think playing Alan Wake one will make you really appreciate game design things that they have done to move the idea set up in Alan Wake so far forward in a way that would have been impossible to pull off in the way that they have done here on PlayStation three and 360 and PCs of that era. Well, I, that I can definitely agree with. Uh, dude, I am so stoked for you to get to Alan Wake 2 because it's doing some stuff that is clearly benefiting from modern-day hard drive and solid-state drive speeds yeah. um, that you arguably might have been able to pull off last generation, but there's no way it would have felt as engrossing and immersing and just generally like mind-fucking. There's, a, there's been a few times where I've been in the game but like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and it's really cool. There's a lot of basically everything that the premise on paper you would have thought might have been something they tried in Alan Wake 1. It actually gets done here, and it's incredibly cool. Everything that's unique about the, the setup and the unlikely protagonist of being a writer in a horror story is maximized and pushed and it's so good and I'm, I'm I am not surprised at all that they are getting a lot of love for this game because 
They've taken every game they've made, including Alan Wake, since Alan Wake. And you can see game design lessons from every single one of them. You can see story lessons and how they learned how to craft a story. You've seen, and one thing that's became real uh, prevalent, even starting so far back as Control, but being able to see it in Alan Wake too as well, um, is the idea of interstitialing live action into your story to be like, fuck it. We can more effectively tell the story if we just put a camera on these people and just act it out. And that's kind of cool because that's all quantum uh, break was quantum break was half the, half of the story is a show, half the story is a game. And that was really unique and cool, but they were just like, yeah, we don't have to treat everything like a high budget show, but we can still learn from that and get these actors that we're already basing these characters off of and just say, Hey, act this out because it would be really stupid from a development standpoint to set this scene up, try and render it and do these performances with mocap when we could just record you. And then you get those cool things that you saw where it's like you're walking and then suddenly they do these things where they superimpose this image of one character over the other. And you see this bleed and you see a silhouette and you're like, this is visually cool as shit. I've never seen anything like this in a game. And you only get that from all these lessons they learned across multiple games. It's awesome. I'm glad you like Alan Wake too, man. Yeah, it's it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So let's. Uh, I've been playing Alan Wake too. Clearly, uh, I'll go ahead and Seems throw my so. other one out. Lies of P, still incredible. Uh, I am taking it slow on purpose. I'm not just trying to bash my head through it. Uh, anytime I start to get mildly annoyed because of my own lack of skill, <laughs> then I usually will turn it off like and either watch TV or play Alan Wake. So <laughs> I'm not super far in Alan Wake too, but or at least I don't think I am. But man, so. Yeah, what else have you been playing? Then we're going to move on and uh, kind of get talking about all these uh, news because, spoiler alert, there is no community stake this week. Yeah, it means Brett got another week to maybe not clearly forget to fix the theme song. Because I know he didn't well, fix there's it also, this week. Well, there's not a Velvet's Corner either, but also, spoiler alert, good good job, Chris, reminding me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought that's where you were going. I wanted to give you shit about the uh, the theme song. Actually, made that decision. I was at work and I was like, eh, I could come up with something, but we left it open ended. And I thought, there's a lot going on. This is going to be a perfectly long episode without anything else. So, uh, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, but go ahead. So um, I see, I see the return to Apex on the list here, and then I see one very particular game, uh, a sequel to a very fantastic game. Yeah. So yeah, I've been back playing some Apex with the uh the new characters. The um the post Malone thing is out and I really like that game mode. It's really fun. You get three Wait, what? S- yeah, so they did <laughs> they did a collaboration with Post Malone where I guess of course he, they did. He uh designed some skins and had a, a hand in creating the LTM. And the LTM is fantastic. So it's uh you it's Apex, but you get three team wipes and you keep coming back. So it's been fun where it's like you drop in, you get into a team fight and you either wipe the team or you die. And then you drop back out of the the bus or whatever, back into the fight right over where you died with all your guns. So it's literally just been, okay, we just got wiped. We're going straight back in immediately start fighting. So it's just been stacks of people on top of each other. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been like a high stakes team deathmatch mode. 
I got you. But if you wanted to, you could, as you're dropping, veer off to give yourself yeah, time you, to reset. You could go somewhere else. But that's the thing. You don't have to because you land with full shields, full uh, not full guns, but the same guns and the ammo you land you died with. So you land with everything you had. So you don't have to go get new guns <laughs> or restock or heal. So it's been really cool. I mean, All right, yeah. Eminem. So Thank the, you. I appreciate that. <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> The other game I've been playing is uh, Pursuit Force Extreme Justice. Let's go. Game is uh, game is a lot of fun. It's almost the same as Pursuit Force. There's some there's some new mechanics in there, and there's a pretty wild opening. Have you played Extreme Justice, Brett? I have not, <laughs> and that's why I'm glad it's on there because I've never gotten to. It opens. Um, this is literally the opening of the game when you turn it on. It opens with two of the cops getting married and then like a redneck gang with like a big van with machine guns on it, like drives through and shoots up the wedding and then they go after them. It's awesome. It's such a wild nice. game. I like it a lot. But yeah. Everything I'm, about that series. Insane. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's one of those where I'm like, oh, I'd love a sequel to Pursuit Force. And I'm like, they could never make a sequel to Pursuit Force. <laughs> you know, I know that it's just where the industry's at. I am aware of that. But I remember being so destroyed when they announced the closure of Big Big yeah. because they're a great developer. And they honestly, dude, they did so well for handhelds because they also made a uh, MotorStorm Arctic Edge which was a fantastic translation of what made the MotorStorm games interesting on PlayStation 3 moving over to the PSP um, and Little Deviance was an interesting game they just fell victim to the same thing that PlayStation's done to a lot of people we're going to try and get you to make a game for our new system that leans incredibly hard into its gimmick and <laughs> then when it doesn't land as hard as we want also, because we made some weird decisions with the system, we're just going to shut you down. <laughs> and that <laughs> happened to Zipper Interactive. That happened with Big Big Studios. Uh, that happened with uh, RIP, but, you know, Studio, um, well, it was Gorilla Cambridge, but I can't remember their original name right now. London Studio, um, right? It wasn't London Studio, but I can't think of the name that they went by. Uh, London Studio is still around doing... What last they did was VR titles, but they're working on some big online game now, uh, which we'll get to talking about here in a bit. But yeah, um, Chris, are you are you happy? Are you done talking about all the stuff you've been playing, or is there anything else you need to get in there? Um, I think eight hundred hours Marvel <laughs> Snap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Marvel Snap's going through its own issues. Where I I don't know. I love I still love Marvel Snap. I'm on the as I'm sure is shocking to nobody. The less pragmatic side, the more nihilistic. This is just how the game is, bro, uh, side of it all. But yeah, they're going through their own stuff. So I don't know. They're so you, we can, I want your opinion on something. They put out a card that was very strong, mm -hmm. but it cost a lot of resources. Sure. In terms of either money or time saved, right? Or um, resources saved and spent properly as a free to play player. So they put out this card very strong. People bought it. And then I think three, four weeks after, they nerfed the card and made it almost unplayable. And to me, I think that's just the way it goes, right? 
<sighs> in Yu-Gi-Oh, Man, you- if a card you buy out of a pack gets nerfed or gets banned in Yu-Gi-Oh's case, like, are you sitting there like, oh, I want my money back for my pack? No, but I would say this, and there's a very important distinction between the two. In Yu-Gi-Oh, cards never get okay. Never is a strong word, but very seldom do cards get nerfed. There is a term called errata, where a card that had not very good text or unclear text that made mm. people sensibly think that it had more of an effect than it should have or an effect that was too good because they didn't think through and miss something like once <laughs> per turn or something to that degree they'll go back and errata the card and they'll do a new print that has the new wording um and then even you can use old prints of the card, but you have to use the new effect regardless. You have to Got use it. the new wording just to make sure that everything plays out correctly. That is incredibly rare, but it does happen. More often than not, the way to solve that is just to ban a card. So what happened here? Did they actually change what the card did or did they just change how – how did they – did they ban the card or what happened? No. So in Marvel Snap, there's – to there's a bunch of ways that effects trigger but the main the the most popular ones are on reveal effects and ongoing effects sure sure so when, yeah. originally his effect was ongoing which means you play it and it continues throughout the game of sure. your card's cost cannot be raised your opponent's costs cannot be lowered okay so and it was a 2/3 which that affects play order all that kind of stuff sure before that so the original ongoing basically nerfed or countered 90%, not 90%, that's ridiculous, but a lot of the meta, right? A lot of the meta was cost reduction. It was Sarah Dex. It was, sure. um, you know, Mr. Mr. Uh, Negative, shout out Spider-Man, was, uh, was a big card because he would take the cost and the power and flip them, right? So I have a card like Arnim Zola, who's a six cost, zero power card that now becomes a zero cost, six power card. And yeah. still keeps its effect. It's huge. I love and, when card games actually use like the lore into yeah. the mechanics. That's one of my favorite things. And it's that one's really cool because it inverts yeah. the color of the cards. So then they're all um, black and, and white. Yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so it would it basically Mobius knocked out those archetypes entirely. Certain even cards like Death, which is a eight cost card, but for every card you destroy, she goes down a cost. Right, so most of the time, when if I'm playing a destroy deck properly, she doesn't cost anything. Sure, but again, Mobius, you can't do that. So they patched it and made it an on reveal effect. So you play the so card. Did change what the card did. You play the card, and then on that turn, you can't do it. So it would have to be like a you'd have to snipe, right? You have to be okay. Sarah's five costs. They're bringing out Sarah on turn five so they can make their big turn six play. I'm playing Mobius on turn five, right? You'd have to be more strategic with it. And sure, the yeah. Marvel Snap community exploded. Oh, man, look, and, the one thing that's become very obvious with card games, the more I dig into Yu-Gi-Oh! And you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! has been around forever. Yeah. Um, so two things are simultaneously true. Uh, the meta sets the tone for what is popular when the internet age comes about and it turns out that people can communicate and they want to kind of push toward the edge of what the game can be. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that does set the tone and that sets to some degree what type of cards are going to be made and eventually 
because you don't want a stale meta because if the meta stays stagnant for too long and doesn't see enough change, people get bored and start to fall away from mm-hmm. it. So eventually you have to make a new archetype or do something, either print new support for another archetype that does something that shakes the meta up and moves yeah. the meta towards a new thing. That happens. But that comes with a cost and that cost is power creep. And it sounds like you're dealing with both of those things here. There's power creep. Mm-hmm. which is necessary to keep the game moving forward because people will become bored with what's on offer. So you have to slowly try and push that power up so that you can yeah. do new things. But then you also have to try and shake the meta up. And it just happens to be that right now, the community is not going for that. That's true of Yu-Gi-Oh! Happens all the time. Yeah, and About it's once a year. The, and it's usually the ban list because one thing that's interesting about Yu-Gi-Oh! is you have card limits. Since every card can be in a deck, uh, at least as a base rule, at three of, the way that you can also limit a card's powers is say, yeah, it's a great effect. So the way we're going to limit it is it's a lot harder to get into because you can only run one in your deck. That way, mm-hmm. even if you get it and you can pop off, you can only pop off that once. Uh, you can't stack the effect. There's all sorts of ways for them to kind of do that with just limiting a card or semi-limiting. So you can, they can make it to where you can only have one. They can make it to where you can have two instead of three or just outright ban it. Uh, and sometimes it's necessary because as kind of happens in like Apex, you release a gun, you release something that's cool and powerful and draws people to the game and they go, this is awesome. I love this gun. They start using it, draws everybody in, the game starts doing better and then they go, okay, that's a little too powerful. So what we're going to do now is either drastically scale it back in terms of how many you can run or outright ban it so that the yeah. health of the game long term is not damaged. Well, the question. But you would never make the entire group happy. That, and no. the more diehard the fans, the more visceral the reactions. Well, and, and that's the more they're going to play the game anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was kind of the thing, right? Is, you know, it. they're also dealing with the fact that card acquisition is weird in the game, right? Sure. They basically they had a bundle out recently that had 8,000 collector's tokens in them. So for free, you earn 100 about. This is gonna. It's very complicated, but basically, one hundred every five collectors reserves, and new cards can cost either three thousand or six thousand, right? And the bundle that had eight thousand cost sixty four ninety nine, and it had a a variant. It had boosters. It had credits. It had gold. It had all. It had. A, in terms of yeah. in terms of the analysis, it's a good deal, but what they did was tell you, okay. New new cards, you know, series five cards cost sixty dollars basically, right? You got enough yeah. for that card in there, so people are basically saying, so you, I spent sixty dollars, the equivalent of sixty dollars on this Mobius card, and now you've killed it. And I don't know. To me, it was an interest. It's an interesting conversation of like, well, what's better for the game? Well, is are we talking the about interesting the interesting thing or? that comes down? Yeah, and you're right. But the interesting part of this, the wrinkle that you're not going to see in physical card games, is that in physical card games, it's all random chance. Uh, there is no buying a card. Um, well, there is random least, chance in in Marvel Snap. Oh, I'm not That's saying there the isn't. Thing. There isn't. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. there isn't. But the very important distinction is that there is virtually no way to buy the exact card that you want from Konami. You can do it by people who pull the card and sell it, but everyone's investment is the exact same, and that and every card is essentially the same value because of that. Now, the chances of getting it are different, but you're spending the same amount of money for the same chance as everyone. So every card is valued at Konami's level 
the same, more or less, from a monetary standpoint. And so you can get mad that you spent $60 on a card that Konami banned, but Konami's not the one that priced the card at $60. The market itself did. Uh, I think what's happening here, and I think that this might even be true of Master Duel. I haven't played it, so I don't want to overreach there. Um, But since you can, as far as I can tell, buy exact cards that you want if you choose to do so. Iffy. Iffy. So you can. So was, you can. You when you can got save, when they got Mobius, was it completely random, like from a loot box, so or did, did you just go and say I'm buying Mobius for eight thousand coins or you 6, could coins? you could save the coins and buy them for six thousand, or you could use a spotlight cash, which the spotlight cash has a new and card, have a random chance of getting, and it has some of the higher end cards on there. Sure. So it would give you yeah. a chance of getting it. So you could get it for free. It's just a lot but, harder. But since they give you a, the ability to buy it outright, and since people are doing that, they're they're basically saying this card is valued at whatever the equivalent of 6000 or whatever is. Right. At that point, it is a much bigger deal because them making that change means that a card that they valued at that price because yeah, they allow should. you to buy it. Now, all cards may be that price, but point being – any card at that price does have that feeling of like, oh, I spent, which it's, it's the nature of the game. You're, you're buying the exact card you want, which is great because you skip out on the randomness and you skip out on the market that happens in the real world. Right. But that does mean that anything that the game does, you, you have to kind of be willing to say, I knew what I was getting into. I gave them money for something that they ultimately control. Yeah. It's also digital. The reality of Yu-Gi-Oh! is that if you, and this is just how Yu-Gi-Oh! works, if you don't like what Konami's doing, people just play with their cards. That like There are people that pay for uneroded cards so that they can play in a format that recognizes the original effect. Really? Or, they, or they'll say, hey, we're just going to play our own format that we've made called, there's one of the most popular formats is called GOAT. Uh, and it's for scapegoat and it's basically like a 2005 or 2006 ban list uh, and it's every card that was in play at that point in time including scapegoat which is where the name come from and that's an incredibly popular format and people buy cards secondhand because of that and even konami recently when they reprinted all of the old things basically printed an effort to help people be able to get those cards cheaper since they hadn't reprinted most of those cards because the modern version of the game has power crept away past most of those. Yeah. Um, so then there's a second one called Edison, which looks at a 2010 or 2011 uh, ban list and all the cards that were there. And so any card from that date back is playable from that ban list and people play that. But that's because those cards exist. They're a physical item that Konami cannot just go. Konami can't sneak into your house, reprint yeah. what the card says and put it down. So you as an individual have control of how you choose to do that. It's like yeah. Monopoly doesn't say that if you land on free parking, you get all the tax money that people put in the middle, but it's one of the most common house rules because people just <laughs> fucking like it. Yeah. Well, and I guess that's, that's the big difference between a digital game and a digital version of something is well, it can be changed. And if you're going to play it and invest your time, you have to be willing to accept that you don't have control. There's no way for you to say, I want to play Marvel snap like it was in 2022 because no. the game just doesn't exist in that capacity anymore. Well, and think about because you don't about own Fortnite, that card. Right? How big Fortnite is right now? Fortnite in one day got 44 million players because for yep. the new season they went back to the first season of of Fortnite. So yep. that's definitely true. I think <laughs> what's really interesting about this conversation for me, right, is. I am in the zeitgeist, I guess, right? Sure. Like, mm-hmm. I follow Marvel Snap creators. I actually intend on making 
Marvel Snap content. I've been debating hard getting Twitter blue so I can put up videos. Um, but it's interesting because as I've talked about on the show, Sadie plays Marvel Snap and she plays it at a high level. But Sadie is not on Twitter. She does not watch YouTube videos talking about the meta. And she is extremely satisfied for the most part in with the way that the game plays, right? Mm-hmm. She spends money. Like I spend more money because I'm Chris, I'm an idiot. But like she'll she'll be like, Yeah, I bought the mystery pack for twenty dollars or for ten dollars I bought this so I could get a variant some gold. Like she spends money and she's never once expressed to me this system is unfair or the community aspect of it ramps it up so hard. She looks at a vacuum. You tend to be far more forgiving, but the moment that the moment that someone else puts the idea in your head, that something might be wrong, you start looking for something to be wrong and you start being like, you know what? Yeah, they're right. Fuck them. Well, that's why I think the conversation was interesting to have with you because you do have some of that experience, but with this, especially that's exactly we. Okay. So here's the thing. I do love Yu-Gi-Oh and I, every yeah. now and then spend time looking at the other thing but here's the difference i have never once been mad about anything that you has done because no. i don't i we play at a pretty high level but we have a local meta we have our meta and it doesn't really match the real meta and we still play by the ban list we still play by everything yeah. we, if a card gets banned we don't run it we, we are playing up to date but we're not playing the real meta and we're not playing in a nationwide um, social environment like everyone else is. And so because of that, I don't get that fervor because all of us are just playing for our own enjoyment. And we play at a pretty high level. Like, you know, when we went, I actually recently went to, you know, Shreveport, uh, not far from here, and played in an OTS tournament, official tournament store, nice. and did well. But I didn't really care. Some people there cared hard <laughs> and you could hear they were just bitching about every little thing that wasn't quite you know like some of the cards we were playing which are completely legal they're like y'all coming in with that bullshit and none of them were mean but they they were just like well you're, you're using mirror force fuck yeah i can use mirror force if i want to yeah that's how they you know that's like, how you know they didn't have a counter for your card that's 100 you know. yeah yeah no it completely ruined every all, all of their plays right and then you know i don't know it's interesting with snap because it's uh it's been a topic I've been embroiled in, and for me, it's always just been like, well, if I think Mobius sucked because I played Sarah Dex, so it actively took that deck out of out of my hands, and I had to change my strategy with uh, with that destroy. So I don't know; it was interesting, but I do think Sadie is the real benchmark for how much a video game conversation is just terminal terminally online, because it's very much like. She's if she doesn't if she wants a card in the spotlight, she she gets it. She rolls for it. But if she doesn't, she just saves the spotlight caches. It's not that hard to do that. But then sure. I go online and I see stuff like, you know, a content creator go, Ugh, this system is so unfair. I had to use eight spotlight caches to get the spotlight variant. And I'm like, okay, do you not realize how ridiculous you sound right now? That you chose to spend four to get the card and then four more so you can get the variant for it that's on you it's not the game is not doing anything wrong by allowing you to do that you're just yeah and this is this is pretty analogous to most live service games yeah Uh, we talked about before but there's just a balance that you have to strike between keeping the game moving and not having it be stagnant but running the risk of offending people who are enjoying it in its current state Mm mm-hmm 
But the people who want it to be a continuous thing will adapt and move and adjust. And the people who wanted it to be a flash in the pan will quit playing and it will have essentially been a flash in the pan for them. Yeah. I'll I'll move on after this last point, but I find it interesting that no one seems to care when a card comes out bad and gets, you know what I mean? Because there was a card that released recently that was people thought was awful and it was it was not a good card but they buffed it a little bit and now everyone's like oh they released it shitty i didn't buy it and now i'm missing out on this card <laughs> i'm like we well, how, how do you want this to work you just kind of got to get the card or not get the card and build around that it's that simple yeah i don't think everyone should have every card because then that's when the meta gets stale you know i'm not going to get the the card in the spotlights this week because i'm going to save mine so I'm gonna have to play against that card and never, you know, have to learn to play against it and not get to use it. That's how this works. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, we can move off. That was a very Marvel oh. Snap centric conversation on the PlayStation show. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I mean, it's uh, here's the thing: we're gonna have a conversation here in a little bit about live service games, and I think some of this is just a precursor uh, to that. So your uh, and just how fickle and volatile live service games yeah. are, because. The, there's two sides of the market. That was and, the blooming onion to your steak. Yeah, here. yeah. So we'll get going in there, but we're gonna go <laughs> ahead and back off just a little bit. There's no community take this week. Usually, it's where we reach out and ask you guys something to get your thoughts on either something we talked about in the previous episode or just something happening in gaming, so that you can give us new perspective, push back on something you may have disagreed with us on, or offer some kind of new perspective we hadn't thought of. But with that in mind, we're gonna scale back, start up with the news. And the first thing is pretty small, but some of the Black Friday offerings from Sony have been leaked a few weeks ahead. New customers will be eligible to receive up to a 30% discount on a new 12-month plan, and members are eligible for a 25% discount when upgrading to Extra and a 30% discount when upgrading to PS Plus Premium. Some gear will also be on discount on the PS Direct store. Um, So there you have it. Sony seems to be funneling more of their stuff directly into PlayStation Direct. Hopefully you're not one of the people that has issues with it, as became uh, a little evident in one of our... uh, Whenever I reached out for questions, we had uh, a listener say... um, any idea when we can buy the PlayStation Portal, Direct canceled my pre-order. And then they went on to actually specify that not only was it canceled, but they never gave them an opportunity for anything otherwise. It was just canceled. And that sucks. And I've heard a lot of weird stories of not a whole... When I say a lot, I do mean like a small pocket, but pretty severe stories. Like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, Joe from PlayStation, uh, or the Trophy Room, um, had mentioned that he can't check out from PlayStation Direct. It just won't let him do it. And I think if Sony's going to continue to funnel that to be their primary source of where you get their stuff, then they really have a duty to make sure that that works about as flawlessly as they can get it. Uh, and maybe they're there and they're still just outliers, but it doesn't seem like they're quite there. So, Which brings up a whole other discussion about whether or not Sony should be commended for trying to chokehold the industry to where you can only get things through them so they can cut out any middleman necessary. Uh, but they have the choice to do that and we have the choice to either do it or, you know, support it or not. And we all continue to support it. So, yeah, I mean, the thing with that is we know that all this stuff will be on Amazon later. There's nothing that's been PS direct exclusive that hasn't come to Amazon or Best Buy or Walmart down the line. It's really just like, Oh, do you want your, do you want a guaranteed Spider-Man skin? 
get in line here and maybe you'll get one. We're at Best Buy. It just sold out. You know what I mean? So you always have yeah, the opportunity uh, to wait. It's just. I think the real thing is uh, putting people to where the only way they can get certain things by the secondhand market is really rough. Um, and I use that for things that you're not going to find elsewhere and outside of a secondhand market, like the Spider-Man controller and the Spider-Man plates and collector's editions for certain games that sell out very quickly. If you're going to limit it to where the only official purchase can be made through PlayStation Direct, there becomes more of an impetus, you know, impetus to be like, hey, we're going to make sure this works as correctly as possible. And I know that's difficult because even some of the biggest MMOs have server crashes and stuff like that because of how big demand is. Um, but, you know, finding a good balance is ideal. So uh, speaking of ideal things and finding a balance, PlayStation Portal's review embargo has lifted and outlets are weighing in with their thoughts on the device. Reviews have been positive for the device, noting build quality, comfort factor, and low latency, while some still question who the device is really for, which has led to some interesting Twitter conversations. Because I think one of the things that was immediately apparent when they announced it was a discussion around from each person, like, is this for me? And if not, how big is the actual market for this device? And I don't claim to know the answer. Uh, but I know that there's been some frustration with people feeling like anybody expressing that they're not sure who this is for is annoying them. And I can understand that because if you feel like you're in the market of people, even no matter how niche or how large it is, if you feel like you're in the market for something and then someone discounts it by saying they're not sure who it's for, it can be a little frustrating because it feels like, do I not count in this? Um oh. I don't even, but I think it's really a sense of scale, right? It's like I think that the general feeling is it's a great device, and everything I've seen uh, about it is great. Outside of the one scathing uh, aspect, which I think is completely fair, the lack of Bluetooth, um, a proprietary wireless connection that only Sony devices can also link up with. I get it, but it's surprising because if anyone else did this in the modern thing, I feel like they'd be getting a lot more flack than Sony really is kind of interesting to see um but outside of that it's getting a lot of praise for what it is it's just it, the the sad reality of all technology is that there can be great devices that do not have a market big enough to support it and i think that's what people are worried about it's like it's sony wasting r&d on something that will never are as very hard potential for it to be able to find a big enough market to sustain itself but chris what are your thoughts on that um I think the problem with that conversation is it's it's a very narrow-minded conversation because I think from day one, Sony's been telling you who the audience is for. Like, it's not a hard calculus to figure out who the audience for the PlayStation Portal is. It's people who use remote play. So Sure. I think people... I, I think the vast... Uh, what I say? I think the majority of people... Um, even on Twitter, but even off of Twitter, the more casual market. Um, I think that that's whether or not it's a great feature to be there. It's been a, a historically underutilized feature. And so I think when people look at it, they go, I don't really know that many people that do this. So is it really something that's that in demand? And that doesn't mean that it shouldn't or couldn't exist. I think, but I think that that's where the confusion, you know, it's not confusion so much as bewilderment because it's just like, oh, I, I would have never thought that this was. I think necessary. I think the portal's biggest problem is the people who would get the most benefit out of it are probably not going to buy it. How so? 
out of curiosity. Because well, I think a lot of the vast majority of people who are like, I don't know who this is for, they're never going to have the chance. Like, you're not, if, if you don't think this is for you, you're not going to spend $300 on it, right? So you're not going to see True. the convenience of it. Like, the convenience of me going, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to play some Baldur's Gate on my PlayStation portal and watch a movie, you know, or I'm going to grind levels of Final Fantasy in bed. That is a very great use case for the thing. But are you going to spend $300 to do that? 200 just to, just oh, to yeah, I don't know where I got 300 yeah. That's to me. I mean, to me, that's a perfect price to be like, eh, I don't feel like sitting on my chair. I'm going to sit on the couch or I'm going to go upstairs and play on my portal while someone is watching game show network. I don't know. Yeah, I think whenever I look at that, right, I think the way I kind of look at this and break it down is um, if you think that the backbone is worth it, I see no world in which $100 more for the portal is not worth it. Right. The problem for someone like me is I don't see how the backbone is worth $100, but that's just because I don't want that functionality enough to spend that premium. Yeah, I guess... So I don't know. I I'm just, not judging the device so much as I'm judging the price point for the use case scenario I see for myself is just asinine. Yeah. So I will likely never get it. Um, but I think that looking at what it is in context to what devices around it do similar things. Like I said, if you look at the backbone and you think $100 for the backbone is completely reasonable, you are every right to do so. I see no world in which $100 more for a device that does not require your cell phone and can do all of this stuff on its own with an included screen and a much more ergonomic feel and all these different features like the actual triggers and the analog sticks that are supposed to be mainstays of the PlayStation. I see no way in which that is not worth it. So I think it's in a good spot for what it is. I am curious to see how much... uh, Two things. I'm curious to see... How many units they produced outside of pre-order numbers and how readily available the device is from storefronts and online once the pre-order devices are sent out. Uh, And I think it's unfortunate because since we don't know how many they actually produced, it not being on shelves does not mean that it's actually selling well, but also it being on shelves does not mean it's selling poorly. It's just... You'll kind of figure it out relatively quickly as to whether or not there builds a buzz up around this. But I'm glad there's a lot of people on our Discord that seem genuinely excited for this device. And I'm so happy that they have something uh, because I I will agree. I don't think Sony has a very good history of making really sound, well-constructed devices. Um, And this is just another way to do that. And I think, honestly, when looking at what the backbone is, there's a lot of points of failure I wouldn't be comfortable with. If I was ever going to take the dive into... Uh, remote play I would this would be my dive in point if I was going to do it I think this is a much better device all around for it yeah I (laughs) I have a feeling that I'm going to end up getting this because I think it's cool and the videos I've seen you know they they make it seem cool I've been on this seems like something you'd want I I mean that genuine this seems right up your alley yeah it kind of is because honestly like I do like (laughs) the idea of popping down on the couch and putting something on the big screen that I don't have to concentrate on. Like I've been watching out the corner of my eye, the blacklist. Like I'll just throw yeah. on a couple episodes of that and then be playing Baldur's gate down there. You know, I think it's just a matter of having that 
convenience and it's it's having a luxury to do that in the extremely luxury hobby that we all take part in yeah right like that's really kind of the thing right i want to run because we're talking about this one of the funniest things i've seen is the as usual a few just ridiculous reviews where i don't even get the value of saying it but i've seen a few reviewers say the device is great blah 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 but $200 is too much. And not only that, it's $200 on top of having to have a $400 PlayStation minimum, if not $500, and acting as if that's a problem. And I'm just going to be honest, when your device is a remote play device, which is entirely made to connect to something, it feels a little asinine to be like, yeah, but you have to have this much money computer or you know d- device to hook it up to that's like reviewing a monitor and be like it's a great monitor it's really good has great visuals but the fact that you have to have a 500 dollars playstation hook up to it to really get the most out of it it's too much for my blood yeah. or being like you know the well, fact that you have to really this 4k oled monitor with 120 hertz refresh rate is fantastic but you have to have a 1500 dollars pc to see the benefits of the 120 frames per right. second it, How, it's asinine. It's it's a pointless. If you are looking at the device enough to be looking at a review, you already understand that you're going to have to have this device. And even if you don't, you can reference that you need the device without like blasting it for the fact that you have to spend an extra five hundred dollars. Yes, that's what the device is for. Well, it's, it's like the uh, how can I how can I review the PS Five for Kotaku in the middle of a pandemic. Mm. <laughs> that's exactly that's my that's my touchstone for this type of journalism we've had on this show a couple there is always a point where you can talk about price i understand that gaming is expensive right you you and i both understand that intrinsically and i know that there's a lot of people who are like oh i wish it was cheaper every first of all everyone wishes it was cheaper but i think there's a lot of people who expect games to be cheap and accessible and all of this kind of stuff conversations about the rising price of games up to 70 which as nobody wants to pay ten dollars more for the game but i think if you look at where the industry is going and the cost of games you know the rumor is what gta gta 6 cost a billion dollars to two billion dollars want the two billion dollars for grand theft auto and if they come out and say it's costs eighty dollars, it's hard for me to bat an eye at that. Um, so I think that's just kind of the funny thing where it's like this luxury hobby that requires a four K TV and a five hundred dollar console. We're like, oh, who who who, who who's going to spend on the portal? A lot of people are going to spend on the portal. That's why it's been sold out all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even if not, like even if not a lot of people want it, I think one other great thing that can happen is that when you produce something with an expectation of how many people are going to buy it, it's really beneficial. Because yeah. the reality is, is that if they were able to get pre-order numbers and use that to influence how many manu- how many they manufactured, to where there was enough for the open market to have some, but not so much that if it doesn't do well, it's going to hurt them. That's really where you're at. Then it just becomes a thing of they hope they can recoup enough to not have their investment in the in the building of it be an issue, which I don't think so. I think this thing being $200, if I'm being honest, um, I think this thing being $200, they're making a profit off of this. This is not a this is not a loss leading device like PlayStation 5 or PS3 or any of those because you can't buy games 
just for this device. So mm-hmm. they have to make money off of the device to make it worth their while. Or they have to view it as something that's going to drive you to buying games on PlayStation more often than you were. So that analysis has been done and they know what they're doing. So they're probably making money off of it. Um, but as with all things, I mean, that's generally how you approach it, right? If you can look at it and say, look, here's a device that we see a niche in the market for, and we think that there's enough of a niche to make the research and development aspect of it worth it, and we can produce enough, and we can do a good enough job that people will like it, and maybe it could grow into something. But if we start small, you don't run the risk of being the THQ uh <laughs> The U draw, uh, yeah, a warehouse full of U draw tablets that you over invested in, uh, and I think a lot of people learn from that. So, if anybody well, is having any problems, I think that's if you're smart with anything, you can help. Yeah, yeah. and I do want to make the point: I don't believe that cutting a dual sense in half and strapping a screen in the middle took that much R&D time from Sony. <laughs> I don't think so either. So I, I think the thing that took R&D time realistically was not the physical form factor. Uh, though it is a little different mm-hmm. in an interesting in interesting ways, but it's it's familiar enough. I think the real thing was how can we guarantee that this device that we're saying is specifically and only for this one thing has small enough latency that you'd be willing to go, okay, I'll jump in. Yeah. They with said, this what, knowledge that there will be latency. Yeah. Well, roughly. and I think, and that's and, great. Yeah. And, and they, and they mentioned like, you know, don't play call of duty on it like competitively, but well, anything yeah. else you're going to be fine. That's what I was going to say. It kind of, it's kind of also a matter of knowing your audience, right? Like if you're someone who doesn't understand the use of this, but the main games you play are JRPGs or CRPGs or WRPGs, you know, certain WRPGs, I guess, you know, fallout three, you could play on it. Right, sure. You have to know the type of game you're playing. You know, if you're playing fucking Crusader Kings three for eight hundred hours on PS five, the remote pl- this device, the PlayStation Portal, is perfect for you. But yeah, if you're fucking Nick Merckx playing Call of Duty, you're not doing that on on the PlayStation Portal. You're playing on your eight thousand dollar PC. So it's again, it's just know what you play. If you play Game of the Year twenty twenty two, Marvel Midnight Suns you will be fine and you can play this game on the PlayStation portal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this device I think is going to be really interesting. Uh, There is a question that we got around this. uh, And I I know a lot of people are in this situation where they want to, uh, I I think a lot of people are feeling attacked for the fact that they (laughs) have interest in this. I, I don't attack seems strong, but I think people are feeling defensive over something that they're excited for that they feel like certain people are not seeing the value of. And I might fall into that camp because I see the value. I just don't see the value for me. I think that's pretty fair. Um, But we have, uh, good Lord, if I would have only done the work of pulling all this together into one document, could you imagine? (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it's, it's kind of a double question. So we'll go ahead and do both of them all at once. Um, Jehudi MD asks, not sure if this has been covered, and the first part has, but I don't think the second has. Uh, he says, what grade would you give PS5 compared to the rest of PlayStation? We've done that, so we're not going to go down that rate, but I am going to say, he says, includes PSP and Vita. Uh, 
where would the PS5 slot into those in your ranking? And do you think it will improve in your ranking list or remain where it is? And then a follow-up question to that, more specified towards the portal, Aztec King asked, and a rating on where you think the portal will land. Um, and I find that interesting because I think that that question gives a specific idea around what some people who are really into this device look at it as. And I think they're looking at it as far more of a mainline device that they're going to see themselves using a lot, which starts to feel like something that you would rank alongside the actual consoles. Um, so I guess first half of that question, PS5 for you right now, where do you slot it into your ranking amongst the PlayStation systems, all of them, PSP, Vita included? For me, it would probably go PS3, PS5, PS Vita, PSP, PS2, PS1. That was that it? I think that was all of it. PS4 is missing. PS4 is last. But I have a specific reason why the PS4 is last. You can tell me if this is fair play. The PS5 is a PS4. I had a feeling you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) There's no reason for the PS4 to be on a top list because the PS5 is a PS4. At the very least, the PS4 cannot be above the PS5. It is ob- the PS5 is objectively better strictly because it plays PS5 games. It is a PS4 that also plays PS5 games. So launch model PS3 is above every other console. So it's like PS5, mm. PS3, maybe PS Vita and PSP in there. Yeah. But then it has to be PS3, PS2, PS1. Correct. It has to be. It has to okay. be. It has well, to look, be P- I'll say I'll say with you as well. I agree with your uh, PlayStation 3, but I'm also going to be honest about what that is. Uh, PlayStation 3 enjoyed very specific years of my life, very formative years of my life, and my further descent into my love of gaming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I loved gaming with PlayStation 1. I loved it with PS2, but I was too poor and didn't have enough opportunity to play enough games. And I really came into my own of being able to control what I was doing and how I was playing games and which games I thought was interesting and where I could spend my money at the time PS3 was around. And so that coupled with the fact that I think PlayStation 3 had uh, one of the best quality to release um, ratios um, or, you know, I got did it often enough where games were very well made and released about every two years that I don't think that that's going to be able, if you mix all the nostalgia and everything and formative years into that, I think it's really hard to beat PS3. Uh, so with that said, I think I rate, I, I'm, I'm very similar to Chris. I think I'm going to put PS3 first. Uh, I think PS5 is a very close second um, with a similar caveat PS4 and PS5 are very close to each other. And the reason in my head is because PS4 did a lot of great things. uh, And all of those are still alive and well in the PS5, just with all the benefits that PS5 brings to the table, like loading speed and stuff like that, um, and just general ease of use. So when you bring all that together, I feel like PS4 and PS5 are kind of neck and neck. Uh, I'll give the edge to PS4, actually. Let me say that. I'll give the edge to PS4 for one specific reason. PlayStation 4 had more must-play games than PS5 has had yet, partially because games are taking longer to make. Amber, much earlier into the thing. And I know, Chris, you can play them on PS5. <laughs> they're on PS5. I know. They're, but, they're better on PS5. <laughs> I, but, 
but you think I'm thinking of these systems about what how they were when they were in the limelight. And in looking at them, PlayStation 5 and the limelight is lacking in the ex- in the driving exclusives department in comparison to PS4. And to that note, I think the PS3 was doing a better job when it was in the limelight of having must-play exclusives that you could only play on PlayStation than PS4 even had. Some of my favorite games ever are on PS4, but some of my, but most of my favorite games ever are on PS3, and there's so many of them. Yeah. Um, so I think when you put all that together, uh, it's impossible to try and look at this objectively. I'm just reasonable enough for myself to know that. Uh, so yeah, right now, PS5 is in third. Uh, Vita, right behind that bad boy, one of my favorite systems of all time. Um, PSP, very close second to that, also because I had a modded one and had access to games. So that was my way of doing it before I had money. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, then I'd say PS2, PS1. So almost like backwards order. But I think a lot of that came down to when I was able to play things under my own control. Brett, you want? Let's do an experiment. Okay. Let's take. Okay, okay. It's we're at an hour four. Let's take ten okay. minutes. Objective list. What is it? It's hard. Hear me out. Is it PS two, PS four, PS one, PS five? PSP, PS Vita, PS3. And hear me out. PS3 is only last because the hardware itself is so archaic and fucked up that there's a good chance we will never see those games on modern hardware. At least the exclusives. Well, okay. So here's the thing. I think there has to be a certain set of criteria that we agree upon with this ranking of how we choose to rank them. Because I agree with you, but I think when you're doing this ranking, you're looking at what it was and what it brought to the table throughout its lifespan. And then I think you close the book on each one and you're comparing each of them to what they brought to the table in their lifespan. So while PS3 was fucked up, and that did impact itself even within its lifespan. I think it's unfair to say that those games or anything about the system is worse because in the future we have even more context of how fucked up and weird that, well, that design was. I'm right? not saying So I think that. if I'm going to look at it from an objective standpoint and comparing it that way, I think we can look at the games and the way that some games suffered because of its archaic and archaic. Archaic at the time is not accurate. It was far too forward thinking for its time. (laughs) (laughs) And as powerful as it could be, it just wasn't in the mindset of most developers. So I think you have to look at a couple things. Uh, What was Sony doing that time? How well was it supported? What did it do to move the gaming conversation and gaming history forward? As we, you know, once you were able to close the book and go, that was PlayStation 3, what was it? That was PlayStation 2, what was it? Uh, PS2 is massive. And I think it's really hard to not give it some form of top billing because PS2 is very important. A lot of people got into gaming because of the fact that it was that cheap, you know, uh, DVD player. And so suddenly people who didn't even play games started buying games because they had the opportunity because of this thing they bought to play DVDs. And not to mention fundamental game design came from the PS2 and the Xbox era because let's be honest – the home of a lot of third person games, you know, 3D games, GTA, that kind of thing is PlayStation. But without Halo and Xbox, we would not have first person shooters the way we do. So I think that that generation as a whole 
is responsible for the way that video games from now and probably until the end of time are made. So I really, I would, I really struggle between PS2 and PS3. Or you know what I mean? PS2, Xbox, and PS3, 360. Yeah. Uh, in part because 360 jumped the gun really early, and Microsoft made a follow up to Xbox very quickly. Yeah. Because they had recognized that they had lost the previous generation. Um, And kind of smart because it clearly worked for them. But I agree with you. Almost everything about it, the foundation is in PlayStation 2 and Xbox. But I think that most of the way people actually started understanding how to actually use that in game design and at a pace that you saw improvement upon and, and rules set within were early to mid PS3. By late PS3, it was kind of solved, and most people knew what they were doing in those regards. But I think late PS2 and er, and, and Xbox and early 360 and PlayStation 3 to mid PlayStation 3, 360, I think that there is a very obvious thread that can always go back to that exact point in time. Mm-hmm. You can look at any game and go, it looks way better and a lot more interesting, but that idea stems back to, bam, here. And that's when we can really see it finally taking shape and form as something recognizable. So I don't know. See, but I, I think what I would argue is P- PlayStation 3 was the last time that game design, and I think we're seeing it now. I want to go ahead and throw that out there. Up until now, with games like Alan Wake 2 and Ratchet and Clank, and even what they're doing with some of Spider Man 2, right? Up until now, I don't think game design took an obvious change since PS3. Well, yeah, I think that generation had the easiest way to see a change, right? The H, the, the jump from HD, there, there will <laughs> every Even video design, game, though, right? every video game generation from here on in will never compare to the jump from PS2 to 360 or from PS2 to PS3 because of HD. It will well, never happen again unless we get those. But that's like full that's just graphics and VR. fidelity and, and physics, which are very important. But I would yeah, say nobody's going to notice the stuff now. Like <sighs> in twenty years, no, there will never be a oh man, the loading screens got even faster because right now there's no loading screens. Hmm? You know, we're never going to get the, the ostensibly loading jump. screens got worse in the 360 PS3 era. Oh hell yeah, they did. <laughs> Got, oh yeah, dude! When we were loading in to play Naughty Bear those few months back, <laughs> that was excruciating. Yeah, no, that was painful. Oh. And I think that's kind of where I'm going with it, though. Is all of the stuff that is improved mechanics, all of these kind of things, while important and arguably more important than graphics, the the noticeable jump does not come from them. Right, you're not gonna sit here and tell your. I, I I don't think right. If I if my kid got into video games and we were talking about my war story, my console war stories, right at, at bedtime, <laughs> I'm not gonna tell him about. Oh man, when I launched the PS3 and I saw the animations on Ratchet's ears, I'm not gonna tell him that story. What I'm gonna tell him about is, you know, look at what this looked like on PS2. And then look at the jump from here. That's going to be the more interesting conversation, whether it's more important or not is another thing. But that's where graphics are, where the general population, general in quotes, right? But and the physics. General I'll, I'll give physics its importance because as much it's, as graphics are there, it's detail. And detail and physics are very tied together because my go-to story for PS3 
was playing Motorstorm for the first time uh, at, at Best Buy and wrecking the car and seeing the bolts fly out and pausing it and being like, what the fuck? And then realizing that you could take the analog stick and move the camera around the whole car to look at all like the, I was like, bro, you can see the suspension spring, the bolts that broke out of the suspension spring. Like I just, it was amazing because you didn't see that type of detail. And not only because you couldn't see it clearly enough because of resolution, but also the systems weren't powerful enough to even be like, yeah, this car that you're driving in has a full functioning suspension system that if you hit and damage will break apart and reveal every small detail within it. It's kind of like I remember you don't hear this now. Right. But and it's 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 happened, but it happens less and less. I remember when they were talking about God of War three. And they were talking about one of the big changes was that Kratos was going to have a muscular system underneath. His actual character model had muscles that were all connected with ligaments that deformed naturally based on his movements, just like a human's would, and that they were not able to pull that off PS2. And that sounds like such an asinine thing to even think about now. But at the time, that was amazing because it was just not possible and it's why people get so excited about the loading screen thing now and the lack of them and how you can instantaneously load to something new and a lot of these ps5 games because your brain is like that's not what we're supposed to like that wasn't a thing now the thing to look at is wow they completely changed this game in one second yeah i just pretty amazing i i think that's something that we look at more than regular other people but i get what you're saying you might be right. I mean, it's kind of hard we to got know two when minutes. we're so What's in the, the we're, we're in the pocket, you know. Yeah. So What's the I, I think if we're gonna go with the list, uh, I, I still think PS3 and PS2 are really, really high, and I really struggle to figure out which one. But since PS2 was a lot more successful, I think it resonated with a lot of people, and a lot of IP that was big got started in the PS2 Xbox era. So I'm gonna say PS2, uh, and then as much as I love PS3, uh, I think PS4 clearly showed that regardless of whether we think what stuff was happening uh we got big games that people love that were exclusive that were must play only playable on playstation on ps4 and to the tune of hundreds of millions as well as some of the biggest games ever being the home of that and being able to play them there so i'm going to say ps4 has to come directly after ps2 Mm -hmm. ps5 has not been around long enough to really make an impact so i think it's going to end up kind of dead middle because it's doing a lot of good things but you can't really close the book on it yet so i'm gonna say ps2 ps4 ps3 psp ps1 ps vita i love vita and i hate that it has to go last but if we're being objective ps vita made the lowest splash Mm -hmm. It had the least impact on history of games and even the history of handheld gaming. Um, And it clearly did not resonate with enough people to be successful, whether that was because of the device itself or because of policies around what they chose to do with accessories and development and all these different things doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's got a lot of great games, but it has the smallest must-play library of any PlayStation device. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, what is yours? I still think it's objective PS2, PS5, PS3, PSP, PS4, PS Vita. And PS1? Oh, shit. Um, PS1, 
I would probably put before PSP. Okay. All right. So interesting wrinkle in there. Yeah. How do you want to approach the question of where do you think the portal will land within that? Because I have an answer that I don't think is going to really be popular. <laughs> um, I think that the same reason that I will not rate where the PSVR and the PSVR 2 fall within those devices is the same reason I'm not going to rate where the portal will fall. Oh, you're going to Sarah Koenig it. It's, <laughs> it is a device that is immaterial without the parent device. It does not matter without the device that it links to. So in this case, Portal will almost has to inherently be ranked with PS5 because it's intrinsic to it. Just like PSVR will be linked to PS uh, to PS4 and PSVR2 will be linked to PS5. The devices are useless without this other component. Um, mm-hmm. and as much as I love them and I think they're good and there are a Honestly, Portal is even worse because at least PSVR and PSVR 2 have games that exclusively can only be played on them on their parent device. I don't see Sony making a PS Portal exclusive at any point. No. I do. The last thing I'll say on the topic, I do think that if this does see some level of success, there is a chance that we could see Sony bring out a handheld. But I really think at that point it would be just the mini PS4 and you can stream ps5 and remote play on it that's what i think you know just while we're on the topic of handhelds like that with a steam deck announcing an oled model and the pricing for that still being fairly high considering the power of what they are and the switch oled being quite high and all this going on where do you think a sony device that could actually play games natively on its own where do you think that they would even have it land in the price scale of things? Do you think that they would be scared to go high? Or do you think that things like things like the Steam Deck can show them that as long as it's supported enough and can play all PS4 games and some PS5 games and can stream PS5 and all this extra functionality, do you think that they'd be unafraid to have a device that's $400, $500? Yeah, I think they'd be completely unafraid of it. Because that's the market for it, um, you know. Because I think at that point you're just basically selling it as a Steam Deck competitor. Which is why I think I said last week it or it was uh, someone else. They, I could see them partnering with ROG, you know, um, for a bespoke PlayStation One. So it wouldn't surprise me if it was something along those lines, where it's a luxury hobby, a luxury luxury for your luxury 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 hobby, you know. Because that's what the yeah. Steam Deck is. It's a it's an extreme luxury to play your hobby, you know. That's all. So, yeah, I just don't know if Sony has the same motivation that Steam does to create a handheld and then also work up a code basically that can run on top of your OS to basically assist the games in running as best as possible on that device. I, it would be cool to see, but I don't think Sony has as much motivation as Steam. Computers are far broader in terms of appeal and what you can do, and more people have them. Therefore, more people have Steam. There's way more games on Steam, and there's a, a lot higher of... Since there are way more games, by nature of that, more games can run on that device. Um, 
And yeah, it's, it's really curious. I would, I would love to see it, but I don't know if it would be the same. Cause you know, so uh, steam did a lot of work to make a, d- a device that they could ensure was compatible with about 80% of your library, if not more. Yeah. Which is kind of wild. Cause seeing Saul so- play on his steam deck is like, yeah, that's dark souls three running at like 40, 50 frames per second, <laughs> sometimes 60 frames per second. Like, does it look as good as it did on PlayStation or on a normal PC? Probably not, but it looks close. It looks pretty damn good. And if you just want to play that on the go, there you have it. It's, yeah. it you know, it's it's a. I don't know. It's interesting to see. I, I, just, I, I would really be curious to see how many people who are playing Steam Deck are using it specifically to play older games, mm-hmm. and if that gives any information to how much Sony could really lean on making a device that could play PS4 games, but on the go. And if there's yeah. if there's genuine value in that, or if the markets move too far for them to care, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know that like I I don't uh, trophy room from Joe. He had a uh, he was talking about on Twitter that he was selling a bunch of stuff, and he told me he'd sell me a Steam Deck for three hundred bucks. So I'm thinking about buying it just and just to have it for old shit. Like I'm not, I don't think it'd be cool to play horizon zero dawn on it or something like their days gone. Hell, I would do that in a heartbeat, but days gone on a bus, you know, that would be cool. But my primary goal is like, Hey, maybe I'll get back into final fantasy 14 and play that in bed. Or you know what? I'm at work and nobody's here and I got my work done already. I'm going to play some fallout new Vegas. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's kind of I think the pocket it needs to be in. As cool as it is to be able to play new stuff, um, the real pocket is like sixty FPS, Fallout New Vegas, right there. Hey, here's Company of Heroes, like all this kind of old stuff that I think plays best there. Let me ask you something then. For PS Portal, the same basic idea. What do you think the chances are? Because the big difference between the two, right, is Steam Deck can play it natively. Portal can only stream it. What do you think the chances are that people will find themselves in similar use cases to what you just described and and be like, cool, I have the, the internet ability to pull this out and play it in a f- viable enough capacity to drive me to want to bring my portal with me to places so that I can spontaneously play games? How actually effective do you think that will be i think a lot of people are going to enjoy it for traveling to somewhere they know has good internet or for like you said playing off of the tv but still at your house where you know Mm -hmm. you have certain internet but how how do you think people are going to actually get any mileage out of it uh from a i'm on the bus let me use my hotspot and Um, play ps you know play portal well i mean i know that you can do that so i'm sure that and I, I saw that it was running pretty well. So I think the thing is, it's never going to be a, you know. Sometimes you'll you'll th- grab your switch and it'll be a quick like oh, I'm gonna you know pop. Oh, I walked around a couple things as Link and Link's Awakening, and then I put it away because I I was busy. You know where I don't think that'll ever be the case for the portal because you got to set up your hotspot, you got to log into the hotspot, then you got to wait for it to connect, and then you got to wait for it to turn your PS5 on. So I think it's there's too many steps for it to be a oh bong I'm gonna I'm gonna play a level of Slay the Spire, put it away. I don't think that's ever gonna be what the device is for. But I'm at work, 
nothing's going on. Connect to my hotspot. I'm going to sit in here for 20 minutes. No one can find me. You know, that's kind of the the pocket for it, but it's not sure. going to be something quick and easy. Well, let's pivot away to a different piece of news. We have concept artist Hung Nigya. <laughs> Hung Nai is how I'm actually going to pronounce that because I think that's what it would probably be. It's much closer. Yeah. N-G-U-Y uh, <laughs> had listed release windows for Marvel's Wolverine and Sony Ben's next title for 2024 and 2025 respectively. He had these up for a short time on his ArtStation page, a resource used to build portfolios for artists. As of recording, the listings have been scrubbed. So this happens sometimes. Inadvertent ways of giving out when and people are anticipating something to go uh i will say dude if wolverine follows up spider-man one year later insomniac is fucking on one yeah you'd have to think they'd be done for the generation after that right i don't know i dude i honestly they may have a swan song in them after that (laughs) it's that disney money man it helps well, I think it's Disney money, multiple teams that you smartly rotate, and varying game style scales. Because if we're being honest, the scale of Wolverine has got to be smaller than than uh, Spider Man from just a design aspect. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, but who knows? To be fair, we still don't know. I mean, if Wolverine is open world, I fucking hope Wolverine. I thought they not said it world. was a semi open world like God of War. I thought that's what I, I read you might about be it. right. They've they've done a lot of odd. Um, clarification lately and i hope that's it i can deal with hubs i think hubs work for that yeah yeah here now gut check for you will it be better than x-men origins wolverine (laughs) my gut says yes because budget but will i am will not be in this game and and activision will not be uh breathing down their neck saying that we have to have this out by this quarter um I think Will all of those I things. I know. I know. <laughs> it's exactly sure why. It's exactly why Sims in the City, Herbs in the City, is such a classic, all-time, unbeatable game. Will I am and the entire Black Eyed Peas were in that game. <laughs> you had my humps in your uh, Sims. They got my it started. Sims. My Sims. My Sims. My Sims. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. 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 Don't funk with their heart. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm curious to see if this plays out. The bigger question there is Sony Ben being a 2025 for a game for a studio that reportedly completely started development on something new. A roughly four year development time, if true, and if it holds to that, is actually pretty wild in modern gaming. Yeah, but they unless did say, "Oh, it's unless. a games as a service title," <laughs> or or it's Days Gone too. and all the framework is there right i don't need a new map same map (laughs) you know that they're not going to do that i know they'll never but i know that we make a fucking movie that we love well but here's the question though they're going to make a movie sony has a history of releasing games to coincide with their movies are they not going to do it but what do they do for the sequel is the sequel just ash for the movie sequel Yeah, the movie Dude, sequel. If Sony buys Lethos, <laughs> I'm gonna be like, "Why the fuck did you even get rid of John Garvin at that point?" Yeah, could you imagine <laughs> they buy Lethos and give them Days Gone too? And they're like, "All right, make it, <laughs> figure it out." 
The only way I could see that happening is if they do a movie and the movie is just bang fire successful. And for some reason, Days Gone sees a urge like a surge in sales. And they're like, wait a minute. If if they're if they're smart, they make that movie and it's got fucking Deacon is played by Andrew Lincoln and Copeland is played by fucking Mickey Rourke. That, that's no. the thing. If they want that movie to be successful, they're going to make people think it's a Walking Dead movie. No. Fucking Carl will be in the movie. Like, he'll be playing Boozer or whatever. No. Tom Holland is in Dave the movie. Dave Batista will be wife. Booster. Boozer that's, that's not a bad one. Yeah. Dave Batista Look. and James Gunn. <laughs> I'm going to be 100% honest here. I am far less interested in Days Gone as a movie than I am a game. And I do think the story is good, but the gameplay is so fucking good in that game. It is what drove me. Because I, much like everyone, I was a little worried about that game. And I love Sony Bend, but I was a little worried about that game. And having played it, I can say that the surefire reason that game fucking slaps is because it's fun as hell. It is so fun. Yeah, no question. It's one of the most fun Did games. Did it have last bugs and crash and I fell through the map a few times? Yes. Does it do that now? Seemingly no, which is great. I understand why I got the score that it got considering how buggy it was. But if I'm being honest, that game is fucking fun. It is fun. <laughs> fun and it does hell. have a good story that does take about 10 hours to get any kind of actually interesting. And overstays its welcome. But that's okay because <laughs> it's a fantastic game because it's still fun as fuck to play absolutely yeah so i i don't know i honestly don't know that i'd watch a days gone movie here's the thing i know that i would out of nothing other than the same morbid curiosity that drove me to watch the shit show that was uncharted you better watch it because we need to show sony that this franchise matters we're gonna get (laughs) shirts that say triangle squared supports days gone yeah, make days gone again. Yes, <laughs> on a on a hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, uh, I I think Andrew Lincoln as Deacon. Yep. Oh, Listen, well. Daryl Dixon as Cope or not Daryl Dixon, Norman Reedus as Copeland. Not a bad pick. No, Deacon will be Aaron Taylor Johnson. Oh, Craven! <laughs> <laughs> I would legitimately rather be Tom Holland. <laughs> I say that. Here's the thing. I actually really like Aaron Taylor Johnson. I wish that they would have not gone with him as Craven, but I actually mean this when I say that gives him an in with Sony. (laughs) It would not be that surprising for them to be like, okay, yeah, because I am pretty sure Tom Holland became Drake because Spider-Man. And they were like, yeah, we already work with him. Fuck it. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And again, he's not bad in that movie. He's He's not the reason that movie's bad. He's the reason that movie's oh, no. pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I would no. Mark Wahlberg is one of the reasons I thought the movie would be bad. Tom, Tom Holland is, playing every character is as much as a meme, a meme as Chris Pratt playing every character is. But t- I think Tom Holland is genuinely a good actor. Oh, I think so too, and I think Chris Pratt is too. So like, I'm fine. Though Tom you Holland playing Link, fine. Tom I Holland can give- play Link. I'll give Tom Holland. I don't know if you remember the interview he did around Uncharted, but I remember him talking in an interview that he didn't hate his performance, but he felt like 
there was nowhere where he was confident in what his performance was aiming to be mm. because he felt like they were wanting different things out of him and he was wanting different things out of himself. And so he wished he had really chosen a lane and stuck to it. And I don't think he did bad. I don't think he is not the problem in the Uncharted movie. No. But I feel like you can see some of that like lost feeling in his performance sometimes where he's not always consistent. It's not a problem because anybody's more consistent than Mark Wahlberg, but you know. What? That's okay. No way. <laughs> no. I'm in a anyway, Johns. Moving on to the next weird piece of news. Uh, if it's in any kind of indicator of anything, Embracer Group has hit the inevitable hard times that everyone expected uh, with its studios. The latest victim being newly rebuilt studio Free Radical. The studio was working on a revival of the Time Splitters series. As a UK-based company, Embracer is required to spend 30 days working with the company on solutions to avoid cutting. So there is a prayer the studio manages to climb back to life. Embracer's rise was just <coughs> as quick as its inevitable fall, as the publisher has now cut ties with another studio after losing or closing Volition, rather, and apparently putting Gearbox back on the market. All of this negative news coming after its apparent $2 billion merger with Savvy Games Group fell apart and the Embracer CEO, uh, COO resigned from his position. So here's the interesting thing about Embracer. Do you remember when THQ Nordic was doing effectively the same thing as Embracer? Yeah. But it's never fallen apart. Wait, THQ Nordic is Embracer. Now, THQ Nordic got bought by Embracer. No. If I remember correctly. I'm, I don't think that's correct, actually. Give me a second. We're going to find out. THQ Nordic. It is a subsidiary of Embracer. So, yeah, they got bought by Embracer. Back in... It looks like probably 2016, but I'd have to look a little further. Either way, point being, THQ Nordic was buying, 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 and we never. And I always wondered when it was going to fall. So even if, even if THQ Nordic has always been a subsidiary of Embracer, I've been wondering when the hell this was going to start to collapse in on itself because there is just no way that anyone can <laughs> afford to do what they were doing. Well, For the longest time, I my highbrow, completely ridiculous like, film plot theory was that this was like. The laundering, money laundering. <laughs> I was just thinking that today, actually. Because there is no reason. Don't get me wrong. I love all the series they buy. And a lot of them are series that people have been pining for and saying that they would support and then not really supporting. Um, but how often can you continue to do this before eventually you have to be like, one fuck up will bow us under <laughs> completely. <laughs> well, what I've never understood about Embracer is that, <clears throat> like, how they bought the Legacy of Kane. Why is there no port out right now? Like, that's what I've not understood. They bought a lot of classic stuff and then they sat well, on the IP. But they bought that within six months. You know, it's like that was this year. They're not going to turn around a project of that in six months just because. It's not going to happen. That's but not I'm talking about. A, I'm not, I, I know there's more work, but a literal. Here's here's 1999 a, a port yeah. yeah just put it out but they haven't done that for anything outside of Amalur 
and that I've really can really think of, you know, where's all this kind of stuff? Why aren't they doing that with all these old IPs? Sure. That's a recent acquisition, but they have a ton of stuff. They've bought a ton of studios with a ton of IP. Why are there no, like, do you remember when we were kids and you would get like the Capcom pack, you know, like, why are there no like embracer pack one? And it comes with a bunch of IP embracer pack two. Bam. There you go. That wouldn't like hold them over, but it would have a steady revenue stream of some sort while you're building up these IPs. Um, I don't know. Embracer always seemed like it was going to fail. I'm not surprised that it's been, it's here at this point, but they really do seem like the perfect acquisition target for somebody. And I wonder okay, who it's so going to be. Just to clarify where it's at, this was a little harder to figure out than what I thought. Um, to avoid confusion with THQ Nordic GmbH and to co- clarify its position as a holding company, THQ Nordic AB was renamed as Embracer Group in September 2019, while THQ Nordic GmbH retained its name. So it is the same company. But a very specific section of it broke off its holding company part and and gave itself a new name that more reflected itself as a holding company. Um, So interesting to see. Uh, But I almost wonder what that really means. Because like if Embracer themselves go under because they're the parent company in this situation or they're the holding company for everything – I wonder how they would choose to divest this. And really the the sad part is – for them to get the most value out of this, they'd either have to sell a lot at once to one person who'd be willing to take on all this, or they have to shutter all of this to get rid of the cost associated with keeping all these studios open while still retaining the IP, which has an inherent value. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is, is if they end up doing the same thing that they just bought from, which was studios sitting on IP that was being unused, then this IP has just changed ownership to someone else who's now not going to use it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I look, the interesting thing is like, I don't know. know, Microsoft has been lurking over Crystal Dynamics. This is a weird situation, but what's up? No, saying like it's interesting because, you know, Microsoft has been lurking to take over Crystal Dynamics for a while, it seems like. And maybe Sony looks at Square Enix Montreal and they're like, okay, well, we'll take them. And, you know, I think it's 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 gonna end up with a lot of people losing their job. I think if Embracer does close, but there is a lot of avenue for you know Gearbox to get purchased, and hey, even maybe Volition at one point could have been purchased, and Square Enix Montreal, whatever they renamed themselves to, and Crystal Dynamics are all out there. So I think there's a lot of it'll be interesting to see if they parse themselves out. If we're looking at another one of those. Uh, auctions like they had with uh, THQ. Man, I know this is like an interesting thing to really think of, but I really feel like, and I don't know why it didn't happen, and maybe that was a good thing because the company has started to kind of implode on itself, or at least seemingly. I mean, they're moving into publishing and everything. But for a long time, I felt like definitely given the success of both Heavy Rain and then the way more massive success of Detroit Become Human, I always thought it was interesting that Sony did not end up buying, whether or not they tried to or not, that they never bought Quantum uh, Quantum Dream or whatever, Quantum Dream. Uh, I feel like in a similar vein of what Quantic Dream does, but with a little bit more mass market appeal, I feel like from a sheer development shops aspect, I think that Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy 
shows that Eidos Montreal would be an ideal purchase for a Sony studio. And I mm-hmm. do think Crystal Dynamics has positioned themselves to already be an ideal studio for Microsoft to just say, yeah, we'll just we'll bring you in. You're essentially mm-hmm. developing our game anyway. And as long as this game, they may hold off long enough to say, as long as this game does well, we'll take the dive. But they may already just say, like, hey, if, if we run the risk of losing you because of closure from Embracer, we'll just go ahead and buy you outright. And that will, would be really interesting I would love to see, not that I think it would happen or should happen, but I would love to see what would happen if Sony came in and bought Crystal Dynamics. <laughs> it would be so weird. And what would they do? Would they allow them to finish working on that game? You'd think they'd have to because they got to be contracted, right? But then you have to think of it as, does that game have a PlayStation first party banner on an Xbox exclusive? <laughs> yeah, don't don't wrong. I mean this genuinely. I don't think that's going to happen. No, I don't either. I just want but to see a, it. It's a weird <laughs> thought process, yeah. Um, well, it's kind of like anytime that you're doing that kind of stuff, it, it's weird. I mean, to have a studio couple with someone like, you know, Ninja <clears throat> Theory coupling with Sony for um, Hellblade, and then right after Hellblade being bought by Microsoft, it was weird. It's kind of like, huh. I mean, okay. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Uh, but it's just kind of what happened. Uh, let's keep moving along, though. This is interesting, but I think that that was just, uh, it was always bound to fall. Um, I'm actually genuinely surprised it made it this far, all things considered. If we look at this as starting in 2011, the fact that it's made it 12 years before it started to somewhat fall apart is kind of wild. So uh, in in a slightly change of events, for all the bad that's going on with Embracer, I would have given them a little bit of props. (laughs) <laughs> slow golf clap for being able to hold that shit show together <laughs> for 12 years. Someone please buy gunfire games, yeah. please and keep them in good health and make dark siders for, um, <laughs> but moving cool. on to the next piece of news, Sony during an earning, a recent earnings call has confirmed that their plans to release 12 games as a service titles by 2025 has been scaled back to six while they reevaluate when to bring the other six to market. They can't, they claim quality is important and want the extra time to ensure they hit that mark while also noting that they see games as a service as a better model for sustaining engagement over a long period of time than subscription services when looking at the game market, which I thought was a really interesting choice of words. Um, Because what I think is interesting here is I would argue that Microsoft is looking at both of... So both companies are doing it in different ways to a degree. Microsoft is already clearly doing games-as-a-service games that keep people coming back and using those to bolster its subscription model for game pass by saying yeah for every you know for all the times that you may have to wait for a forza or a halo infinite or a starfield you can play the evergreen games of uh grounded and you can play the evergreen sea of thieves and i think they're already doing that they're just mixing those two models they're saying this model is being used to help prop up and support this other model so they can kind of feed into each other while sony's looking at this and saying like yeah we have a subscription service. Mm-hmm. We do. But right now, at least as far as they're saying, none of their games as a service have been confirmed to hit that service day one. None of them have been confirmed to do anything with their subscription service. So it may just be Sony 
saying like, we think that this is the better of the two models, but we're also a company who has the ability to, so we're not going to rest and not at least make sure we have a foot in the other market. We'll play both. Um, but I think it's interesting because it feels like a dig, even though I don't really know that it is. <laughs> I think it's just going to show Sony's mindset and that these shouldn't overlap because if you re- if you make one rely too much on the other, if one falls, the other does, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with, so look, the, the real big question at play here, though, after the Bungie news, after the Bungie layoffs, after the Last of Us factions being put on ice, now we're hearing that they're scaling back. They're only releasing half of what they thought they would release. They're getting assistance from Sega and, uh, and Capcom and all these other people to help kind of work this out. What do you think? Do you think it's obvious in a clear connection that what's been spurred on is that either the Bungie acquisition has not been working the way they wanted or the Bungie acquisition has been working the way they wanted and Bungie is just clearly stating not enough of these games are ready to hit prime time? Or do you think it's a worry of flooding the market and giving the games not enough of a chance to actually succeed? Well, I think I think one of the things that Jim Ryan seemed to focus on was that he was very understanding of the fact that not all of these games will hit. So I think maybe the some of these games were of a lesser quality and he was willing to let that be okay because he's like, well, this game's not going to hit. I know that. But just in case, I'm going to let you keep making it. We're flooding this market. you know. And I think maybe they look at this stuff and they go, an extra year is not going to kill these guys. We should just let them keep working and make this game great. And even if it doesn't hit, it's at least, you know, because PlayStation has that bespoke quality reputation. And I don't think releasing a dud that's a 6 out of 10 does anything for the brand except hurt them. Look at the the flack Microsoft gets when Starfield isn't a 90 on Metacritic, right? They get destroyed, and Starfield's a great game. Which we'll t- I'm sure we'll talk about more later, but you have to have your your ducks in a row with this stuff, and I think protecting your reputation is very important. It's the same reason why Disney's a bad guy half the time, and you can't put Spider Man on your child's gravestone because they're so protective of Spider Man as an IP, they don't want him associated with death. I.e., your child cannot have Spider Man on the gravestone. You know what I mean? Like it all goes back to that. Can't have man spider though. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, I think that kind of translates to the games as a service conversation, where quality is of the utmost importance. So they're not going to rush it, like Jim might have been willing to do. Well. I'm curious because Jim is still acting in the role, even though he's announced his retirement. So I'm curious where this is actually coming from. Is this who's actually spearheading this decision? And is it the COO as we heard on the call or what's going on? Um, But I'd say I think that you're right. I think Sony may be realizing because of the Microsoft side of the conversation that the one thing that Sony has, whether or not it's completely true across the board or has been forever, but the one thing that Sony more or less has from a perception standpoint is the innate Sony puts out quality titles. And I agree with you. If a game is going to be a six or a seven out of 10 and a dud, 
it's a loss across the board. But if a game is a dud and doesn't really land in the games as a service market, but it reviews well, and it has the normal high eight, low nine Sony, you know, and it kind of gets that Sony seal of approval that people give to their games. <clears throat> then it's, it's one of those things where it's like, well, we can take the fact that the game didn't land on the chin because we understand that market enough to know that not every game can hit, but we still get a game that keeps our image alive. And I think that that's really important. And I think it's yeah. pretty apt of you to actually jump in on that and say that that might be it. And maybe The Last of Us Factions was going to be a 6 out of 10. And maybe that maybe it wasn't just Bungie. Maybe it was Bungie mixed with internal reviews where they had people come in and play the game and rate their fun factor and all these different things. Yeah. And all of it together just told Sony, we need more time in the oven. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you one thing going back to Bungie? Um, sure. Sony got played, no matter how you look at it, right? How so? Well, because you read about the stuff after the layoffs and it sounds like there was a chance Bungie might have shuddered if Sony hadn't bought them. And I look at that and go, so why the fuck aren't their games exclusive? <laughs> I don't, I guess I didn't read that. So I don't want to go uh, super far. If you can expand a little bit more on, on what they meant by, they were at risk of shuddering if they didn't get bought. Um, I just don't want to speak in hyperbole on it uh, on the off. I mean, I'm that, not speaking in hyperbole, but that's exactly what they said. <clears throat> oh, I'm not saying you are. I'm saying I didn't see it, so yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit more. But <clears throat> I, mean, I believe you. So if we're assuming no, no, that that's yeah. true, and just, it's coming uh, from the fact of that was the case, and without some extra funding, they'd be running at the risk. And that's true of all companies that are independent, right? That's just the way it works. When you are by yourself, one false move can bring the whole thing tumbling down. Um, and it's definitely ironic for Sony to spend extra money to retain talent while even if it's just people who were on the um, community management side and uh, testing side of things, uh, quality assurance, all those things, I think is primarily what got hit. It doesn't matter that that's probably not the talent that Sony was worried about retaining. It's still a bad look to say, hey, we're giving you extra money to keep employees and then you lay 100 off. Um, and also... I really am curious how much that was a Bungie decision versus a Sony decision. Uh, and, you know, what percentage each one of them had in that. Like, you know, uh, that's an interesting thing. How much freedom do you give companies? Because it sounds like they gave Bungie a lot of freedom in this deal. But does that include ability to <clears throat> make decisions like this uh, on their own? To that degree, I also mean um, Bethesda got a ton a ton of freedom in the Microsoft deal. Uh, but that freedom is not absolute. And so you really have to wonder where the lines are and what control they have. Um, we have a question around this, and I think it's going to allow us to kind of speak to anything deeper that we may view on this. And we've already kind of started this. Uh, but over on Twitter, Gamers Gamut, um, got a YouTube channel. Just go check it out if you like games. He does different views, videos on certain games he's playing. Um, he says, do you think Sony is pivoting in their strategy or just delaying these games for quality reasons? Personally, I'd rather see them focus on what they're good at, blockbuster single-player games. I don't mind them chasing the live service money, but 12 titles, that seems significant. Uh, and I think the answer to the first part, I think, was really... It, it was answered by Sony themselves. Um, but there is a wrinkle where even... Here's the reality. Since we don't know all 12 of these games... 
there is a chance that some of these games are getting axed as a part of this, and we would never know any different. So it's kind of hard to say if their games are just getting delayed or if they're still getting actively made and are just, you know, going to come out at a later date or rather um, if they're just going to cease getting made entirely, but we never knew about them, so it doesn't change much as far as Sony's concerned. If you look at this from a PR move, even if Sony were canceling these games, they would want it to look like all they're doing is delaying. And since there's no tie to the games, it's relatively good PR. <clears throat> the downside of that is in the modern era where everything gets discovered beforehand, it's a risky move because all it takes is Jason Schreier talking to one person who's like, yeah, they shut at our game, and that whole illusion falls apart. Um, so I'm inclined to take them at relative face value and say that they are just delaying these games because of quality concerns the reality of that is they could still be cancelled if quality concerns cannot be addressed in enough of a way to view the project as worth it but it'll be a while still before we figure that out Um, but yeah 12 titles incredibly significant so kind of on what's going on here do you have any inkling of what six games you think will be the ones that we see since we knew so little to begin with? Do you think that the games that they've chosen to reveal so far are going to be fine? Or do you think some of these are going to be games that are already out? Like my real curiosity here is Helldivers two. Is that one of the six? I think so. Probably. Yeah, <coughs> probably. Uh, MLB the show, probably one of the six, right? Yeah. So there we go. We got that. Um, what about uh, Fair Games? I think is that's that what it's one. called? Yep. I don't. Concord. I don't like the name of that game. <laughs> and Concord. Yeah. Um, what do you think I, about those? Do you think that those are ones that are subject to being hit, or do you think the reason they showed them is that they're confident enough in them no, to know I, that they're the ones? I think they showed them because they're confident, and I think Sony had mentioned Concord for next year. Um, yeah, I think those are coming out. Can I say one thing? Well, two things. A, just to clarify. So this was from Paul Tassi and Forbes. He reported it on the 3rd. Sure. Uh, internally, no one is blaming Sony for the layoffs at Bungie, even management. Some employees were told that if the Sony buyout did not happen with current uh, Destiny 2 performance, the studio itself would have been in jeopardy if they were still independent. So that being the case, Sony got played <laughs> I don't know at if I'd least say they got in the played. sense of they spent 3.6 billion dollars on a company that needed saving at, you know microsoft did the same thing with activision for all intents and purposes that was what was being reported is that they were activision was looking to sell because of all their legal troubles so yeah you think with bungie <clears throat> the way that they're talking it's like you couldn't have been like We'll buy you. We'll bail you out of this. Some layoffs may happen down the line, but we'll buy you and we'll start paying for you. But Marathon's ours. <laughs> like I, I'm well, kind of shocked. I'm going to be honest, though. I don't know if the value that Sony saw... Well, I think Sony, and for anybody listening, there has been a little bit of Chris seeming done and then the, everything catches up. So if there's <laughs> any talking over, I apologize. It happens um, on my end, too. Yeah. Uh, with that in mind, I think there's a there's every chance in the world Sony knew what they were getting into. <clears throat> yeah. And I mean that in the sense of independent studios are inherently rocky and funding, if at any point shifts, 
can have this kind of situation where, oh, now we have to scale back. We can't do this. We can't do that. Um, I think Sony might have well known what, what they were getting into and understood that without the funding of a stronger parent corporation, something like a rough period in Destiny 2 could be fatal to the studio. <coughs> but I think Sony may have seen the value of when they're doing well, they tend to do quite well. And if that is, if that can continue and those games are open and they don't take a PR blow from making anything exclusive and they get all the extra money from any other platform, these things are developed on blah, blah, blah. I think at the end of the day, sometimes great studios go under with great talents and that talent is lost for no reason other than that they were independent and the market was too volatile to keep them around. Sony may have sheer, just genuinely been like, we understand that you are a volatile company in an independent market, but when you have us to support you, we can use your expertise. And whenever y'all are doing great, we benefit from how great y'all are doing. When y'all are doing <coughs> less great, y'all benefit from how great we're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's a good benefit. And then we still get to... You, we get to use your expertise while also still allowing you to grow that expertise so that you can help spearhead our... So it may have been a calculated risk of we understand what we're getting into, yeah, but the value is there and we would rather <clears throat> pay billions of dollars to get that, to get the ups and the downs while also being able to utilize and tap into that knowledge and how valuable yeah. that must have been to them. But again, for me, I it's think just... that that sensible choice when you make, when you're saying that you want to release 12, yeah. even six, honestly, you know, games as a service titles when you have no history of doing that. Again, it's really five because MLB is probably counted in there. Um, yeah, no, for me, it's just the exclusivity thing. It's like if you knew Bungie was in trouble and you gave them that much autonomy, that's kind of crazy. But hey, maybe they knew Microsoft would have bought them and then, they would have spent more money to get the games exclusive. Who knows? It's not that important, but it just seemed uh, it seemed interesting. Well, but to your point, though, if if Destiny Two doing bad for a couple of months puts the whole thing at risk, if Sony buys that and incorporates that risk, aren't doesn't it hurt Sony even more if they make a game exclusive and then that game underperforms? Like, you're well, just compounding the problem. <laughs> for me, I'm not even saying that the game should be exclusive. To me, it's more the fact that Sony left themselves no room for an exclusivity, any kind of exclusivity. Yeah, you're right. Because the entire contract is... Right. We, yeah. They literally said Bungie games will be everywhere. You know, so it's like you didn't even leave yourself an out to be like, eh, you know what? You know, take a break, take a small team off marathon and make us an exclusive first person shooter eight hour campaign. That's kind of that's kind of nuts. A little bit. Anyway. A little bit. Moving forward. Um all right. Let's see. <clears throat> I think I don't have much more to say about that because Sony hasn't really released enough of these to be able to judge where they're at in this. This is just interesting and telling. The only thing I can really hope is that. Of the six at release, if it ever becomes evident what those six are, they all land. And if they all land and they do pretty well and they score pretty well and they make enough money at the very least to recoup the development and then maybe even one of them sticks, then maybe this starts to be reframed as a good choice. Because mm -hmm. trying to shove six more games into that same time period may have kept that one game from even having the chance to be a success. That's just the reality of 
flooding the market. I mean, we yeah. saw that something as simple as choosing to release Fallout or Titanfall 2 rather at the same time as Battlefield has huge impact because you're flooding the same market as your own competitor and you're only going to eat your own things at that point. It's just the nature of putting out things. There's only so much market share in any type of genre and any type of game. You don't want to fight yourself in that genre when you already have to deal with other people. <laughs> but no, that's you're okay. exactly correct. All right, last thing we're going to talk about is uh, Game Awards, and there's plenty, of course, to talk about. Chris, how do you think approaching the Game Awards um, is best here? Do you think we just kind of want to go through the nominees for yeah. the actual... There's there's a conversation happening online right now that I'm curious if you're going to tap into about... No, I don't have any... Categories. <laughs> yeah. I, I have some thoughts then, yes. Okay. Um, so of course there are the categories and then the <clears> nominees, <throat> and there's a lot to be said within all of that. And there's a lot of questions. Look, award season is a big deal to a lot of people. And I think it brings out a lot of very specific opinions. And in a year like this, where usually everyone more or less agrees that there's one, maybe two obvious choices that may duke it out. Uh, in a year like this, the most common complaint I've heard is that a lot of games didn't even hit the list for Game of the Year or even other nominations for other categories that they feel like should have fit. So I want to start this off with a very specific question before we even get into talking about any of the games or any of the categories. And it comes uh, from Twitter. Longtime friend of the show, longtime listener, our buddy Sweet Gran Turismo Jones. And he says, how important are award shows to you personally? And second part, how important do you think they are for the industry? So let's start with that first part, Chris. How much do you actually vie into the awards and the show and how you actually feel about the awards given and everything? Do you put much weight into that? Do you put much stock into it? I can tell you that. I'm going to probably mute the game awards when they're not showing trailers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is uh that's an answer in and of itself. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. it's cool. You know, like I'm rooting for games, but I don't really care. Like I want Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate three needs to win game of the year, but I also am self-aware enough to know that that is just me desperately wanting my opinion validated. Sure. That's all it is. That's what all of this is. That's why Xbox people online right now are having a a, fall, a meltdown about Starfield not being nominated. Sure. The reality is, again, in my opinion, and I think just objectively, looking at the year, Starfield doesn't rank in the top of all these games. I'm just it's just the way it is for a lot of people and enough people that the game wasn't nominated. But that doesn't mean it's not your favorite game. You know how long I've had to live with people telling me that I'm an idiot for thinking Fallout 3 is better than New Vegas? <laughs> you know? They're yeah, wrong. Many moons. Then They're wrong. But that's okay. That's just my opinion. So I think for me, watching the game more is like, I do, I'm more interested in the industry now. So like, yeah, it's kind of cool to see like the Baldur's Gate team on Twitter celebrating and Sven holding all his trophies from the golden joysticks. And I root for the people there, but... For me as a general consumer, I'm there for the trailers. I think this is more important for the industry than for me. 
look, I'm with you. It's nice to see a game that you like and a team that you like who made a game that you like get celebrated. Because like you said, it's you feel like it's validation for your opinion, but you also feel like it's it's like you're happy that your opinion that just got validated was shared by so many people and that that's going to reflect positively on the people that made that thing that you love. And that hopefully means they'll get to make more things that you love. Uh, it's why I'm very partial to a lot of developers. And I understand that developers come and go and leave and things change, but I still love Ready at Dawn. You know, they made a lot of games that I felt like were underdog games. And it doesn't matter, like Chris said, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about them. I get to think the way I think about them. And it's nice to see, even if it's not an award show, right? It's nice to go on Twitter and see someone else love The Order 1886 or love Daxter or love God of War Goes to Sparta because I love those games. And it's just nice to see someone share that opinion. And of course, the less common the opinion is, the the more delightful it is when you see someone share that opinion with you. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't care who wins what here because the reality of it is, is that we talk about how in a lot of ways, I feel like the gaming media, definitely the more long running legacy media for gaming and even people who have gone outside of that and settled into the YouTube sphere of it and made a big business out of it, I don't really think that they speak for the majority of gamers. To that end, I don't think that me and Chris speak for the majority of gamers. Hell, I know that because we're not, the, we're not that big of a podcast. We speak to the people that we speak to, and that's great, and our opinion can matter. But the reality is, is that when you have a panel that determines what games are even nominated, and then that same panel has a majority vote to understanding what game even wins the award, all you're doing is looking at someone else's pissing contest. And... It's great when the things that you enjoy get recognized by those same people that you don't necessarily always share. Your, you don't think always share your opinion, but I don't care. A real question, though, is I think that they're important for the industry, but I think that they're important for the industry in this self. Oh, how do I, how do I want to say this? It's the same as the Oscars, right? It it's is. Like, it's, I don't give it's, a shit. It is the, it's the industry Hanks. patting itself on the back. Yeah. Well, I think in all industries and in all jobs, for the most part, there is a need to recognize good work. You know? Yes. In, you know, just as an example, my brother is now is now very successful probably i would have to imagine one of the youngest people in his position definitely in his company and it's because of how hard he worked right that he was shown that recognition and that's a small microcosm of something like this where this is different in that your job is not affected but this is still a group of people telling me telling you you did an excellent job hey everyone at larian you guys won game of the year the work you did for eight, nine, ten years was all worth it. Twenty years, going back to the skills you picked up with Divinity and all the games you did before that. You know, I think it's this kind of stuff. While yes, to us, it's like oh, they're just patting themselves on the back, and you know, Greg Miller is voting on Game of the Year, so that's why Patapon is here, or whatever ridiculous thing that happens because sure. of who votes. But in the end, I think it's just a way to show recognition, which to me is why the only ones that actually matter are the Dice Video Game Awards. <laughs> well, 
I think they're different things, right? Um, this is going to sound weird, but I think looking at and I am choosing to view this. He said our award shows, but here's the thing about award shows. A lot of the time there's a monolithic one that's viewed as the one. And I think a lot of the time, and I understand the value of that, but a lot of the times people look at this and I want to say I find far more interesting and I even think far more developers themselves, uh, not necessarily publishers, because publishers are looking at big picture and they want the recognition to happen at the biggest stage possible. But I find that a lot of developers really appreciate smaller scale game of the year awards from smaller communities that are more intertwined and interconnected with each other because it feels more discernible. It feels a little more real. And I think it's easier to point their gratitude toward that. Whereas something big like this, it's it feels more broad and it is great and it's so cool to see people get these things. And so I'm not taking away from that. I do agree with you that showing uh, a, an award for excellence and great work is important. And it's a good way to give people uh, recognition that they can use to benefit their career. And to that end, I would say it's important for the industry because it builds up developers so that they can continue to go on and build their career. Like Chris always talks about, like even last week when we were talking about Insomniac, or maybe it was the week before, but he's like, you know, wouldn't you want Spider-Man 2 on your you know, your CV? Yeah, of course you do. Why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. And it, by that same stint, developers want high Metacritic games on their thing, right? You want the games that landed in the 90s, just like you want the games that won awards. You want to be able to say, look at me, I worked on this game that was renowned and at this big platform that everyone has their eyes on, even if the reason they have their eyes on it isn't really for the the awards, for being honest. The reason the awards show gets watched by so many people has almost nothing to do with the awards. The people who care about the awards are really the people that are like us, who are very online with it. But the millions of people who tune in watch to the tune of 20, 30, 40, 50 million people is primarily my buddy at work, Mario, who doesn't keep up with any of this shit and just watches award shows and things like this for the reveals. Think about this year, right? The biggest favor that Rockstar could possibly do Jeff Keighley is to announce GTA 6 on the 5th. Or the the eighth, whichever day, because ninety. I I be willing to bet. I say this right now. We can bet anything on it. This year's game awards will have the highest viewer count of all time, and it will only be if GTA Six is not announced before the game awards, because everybody in this world will be watching it just for that trailer. Yeah. Jeff knows that, and he is. Begging Rockstar not to do it before the TGAs. I would. Well, be. because in reality, Rockstar doesn't need the game awards. It, it no. can benefit from the game award, but it doesn't need it. It doesn't need Which it. is kind of like E3, right? E3 fell by the wayside because everybody realized we don't need E3. Dude, they, do they it our own way now. sent out a tweet that said, Hi, we're going to announce Grand Theft Auto soon. And it's the most liked and most viewed tweet of all time. They don't need anybody else. But if they like Jeff and they want to skyrocket him, they're showing it at the TGAs. So, yeah. and I'm well, watching and that's for important that. too. The industry working with itself in order to do that is very important. Um, so, it's a really hard question to answer because I think that they're important for the industry. Um, 
But I still think that what happens is people get hyped up and have this big conversation online and they view this monolithic thing as this big thing that matters more than anything. And that's why I go, even on a personal but on a professional level for the people who actually make the games, I feel like lower level awards are more meaningful because there's more community, there's more discussion, there's a better sense of what's actually going on than necessarily this big monolithic thing. But the monolithic thing is the one that everyone you know, you know unilaterally recognizes because it's just gets the most eyes and it's smart to get the most eyes on it by putting it you know coupling it with um reveals but the reality is is that a lot of the rewards uh, awards if you remember last year more than half of the awards if i remember correctly were given off screen yep yep um and so it's cool that they still get the recognition and i'm glad and i love when people get good things but across the board much like metacritic it's important because we all react to it the industry reacts to what wins and typically that gets them a game of the year version of the game they can put out and will get them even more sales. And so you strive to make games that win awards so you can put those awards on your game so that you can continue the loop of people being more likely to buy games that are awarded and decorated. And then you just keep going. So it's a feedback loop. The reason they're important to the industry is because we've allowed them to become important to the industry, but they're also important in the industry just for giving recognition what recognitions do. Um, but you know what? Let's go ahead and jump into the actual nominees. Uh, and so the big category of them all, of course, is Game of the Year. So the games that are listed here are Alan Wake 2, Baldur's Gate 3, Marvel Spider-Man 2, Resident Evil 4, Super Mario Bros. Wonder, and Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Now, first question is going to be wild, but I think it's going to help set the tone uh, for this discussion because I think it's very important. Uh, no Fate. One of our longtime listeners, longtime patrons, he says RoboCop seems to be getting great reviews, but I'm not hearing it on any game of the year list. I do want to specify any. Uh, so he's including smaller shows like us and people who are already talking about that. And he says, do you think it's worthy of game of the year? First thing I want to express for both of us that I can clearly say is that Chris nor I have played it. So mm-hmm. it'd be unfair of us to deem its worthiness. But from everything I've seen about the game, it is not the type of game or the caliber of game that you should expect to get given that. It looks great, much like Terminator, uh, Terminator Resistance was great by the same developer. But it is not the type of game that I'm playing to try and move gaming forward or do something breathtaking and original and crazy. It's just a well-made game that's fun to sink hours into and get lost into without ever having to stop and be like, wow, this is breathtaking and amazing and my life has changed. I think this is just a good example of a well-made game that uses this license well and people Mm -hmm. enjoy because it scratches a few itches while never being something that you're just going to hoot and holler about. You know, I just, yeah, there needs to be some expectation that not every game that is considered great and gets great reviews and gets good talk is going to be worthy of being talked about as a game of the year. And to that end, I think that's where Starfield comes into play here Mm -hmm. because the reality is, is that Starfield seemed to be very fun for a lot of people and a lot of people loved it, but it didn't review as high as a lot of people expected. That's not the end of the world. Could still be game of the year, right? But I think a lot of things happened and context is everything. And Starfield in a year like this cannot cut it. No. And I here as someone who again has not played Starfield but has clearly seen it and has seen people's reactions and see what it's doing. 
I saw some people surprised that it's not here. And I even understand that. It was a big game, big flash. Sold very well, did a bunch of things. But if I'm being honest about what it is, most of Bethesda's games that have been given Game of the Year nominations have significantly pushed gaming forward in a very easily discernible way immediately. Morrowind brought role-playing to a three-dimensional plane in a way that had yet to be seen, hardly at all on PC and not at all on console when it hit Xbox. Oblivion took that a step further and defined what an open-world game was on console and even the quality at which it could be done on PC. Skyrim took all of that to the nth degree and made it to where multiple very in-depth stories that were just as important, if not more important, than the main storyline was there. Hundreds of hours of deep content and the ability to do and play however you want and not have to restart. You know, some things that people complain about, myself included, but that made a real impact on game design and moved things forward. And what I, the way I've worded it with talking to a friend about it, Starfield is the first Bethesda game Outside of Fallout, Fallout 4 was massive, so it'd be so hard to say this, but Starfield is definitely not the type of game like Morrowind, Oblivion, or Skyrim, and maybe even Fallout 4 and Fallout 3 to transcend its medium or transcend its genre to where people who aren't usually fans of this game are hearing about this in such a capacity that they cannot help but be pulled in by the intrigue around it and how big the conversation was about what it did in moving game on forward. I just don't think Starfield had any of those elements. It's a great game. It does a lot of good things. It does a lot of the Bethesda things that people love, but I don't think it's doing as much new as those other games were. And because of that, I don't think it's going to get a nod towards Game of the Year because in a year like this, it didn't push gaming forward where other games arguably did. Yeah, I mean, it didn't push gaming forward and then a game came out around the same time that just... Did everything that a Bethesda game used to do. Right. And I mean that in the sense of defied expectation showed that there was so much more you could do with a video game than we've been seeing lately. Even if some of it's old school design, it shook up the gaming landscape in a way that's undeniable. And it was a flash in the pan and everyone was talking about the game, even outside of people who usually play those games to the point that Baldur's Gate three is a CRPG, a, a, a type of genre that is usually not seeing tens of millions of sales. That is not normal. In a time where people are saying that Final Fantasy is real-time because turn-based is too risky, <laughs> this game comes out and proves that if you make a good enough game, people don't give a shit. Yep. So yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 is the normal Bethesda game in terms of its impact on the industry, and Starfield didn't live up to that. And that's not saying anything bad about Starfield. It's just a reality of what happened on a industry scale i agree i know it's like chris said if you think starfield was your favorite game of the year and it's your game of the year don't let anyone take that away from you yeah don't stop award shows are just trying to look at what moved things forward and what had an impact and i just i don't think it's fair to say that from the way that they typically view that starfield did that but that's okay um 
there's so, genuinely so many questions around this. Uh, the second one that's around this category before we go too far. Uh, Jason G says, hi, what game or games do you feel should have been nominated in game of the year category and which one shouldn't be there? He says RE4 is a remake. Should remakes be nominated? And then he mentions Hogwarts legacy. Hello, the disrespect. Um, and this brings into another weird thing for game of the year. So Chris, you played Hogwarts legacy. I played Hogwarts legacy. Uh, I don't think either of us beat it. Uh, and that's regrettably, I actually tr- want to try and beat that by the end of the year. Um, did you beat it, or am I wrong? I didn't beat Hogwarts Legacy. I've considered going back. Me too. <laughs> but that said, it brings up a lot of questions in here. First one, Chris, a lot of talk has been happening about a remake being a game of the year and whether or not that's fair to new and innovative ideas. And I think that there's a really potentially controversial conversation within this. I don't know necessarily between you and I. I'm curious as to where we both land on it, but what is your gut take on how remakes should be handled when looking at an award ceremony? Um, Resident Evil 4 is one of the six best games of the year. So as far as you're concerned, if a remake meets the quality, it should not matter if it's a remake. If it... (sighs) exceeds in its design and in its execution. Yeah, I, I I can't fault the best game that came out this year because it came out a while ago before. Because that's just where the industry is going, I think. It's just, the, you know, I think for me, <laughs> I, I preferred Resident Evil 4, but I actually think Dead Space is the more deserving remake this year. So that that is already one of those things where I'm like, that's almost interesting in and of itself. But that is a personal take, I guess. If you had to go through that, like how would if, if someone asked you, how would you describe the fact that you think a remake should just be as should be as eligible as anything else? Like what would the what is it about the remake that you think the criteria would still fit into being able to be worthy of game of the year in the same capacity that a brand new original idea could be? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think for one, I think for the most part, Resident Evil four is a new game. So I do think that kind of puts it in good company. Um, I don't know. It's hard. I don't know. I. It's kind of like what the government said about porn. I know it when I see it. That's the best answer I got. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to try and go through what my version of it was because I was thinking about it too. And I think one of the clear top contenders for the games I have played this year, and I want to make sure I get that out right now. I have not played many games this year because this year was stupid stacked. Um, So I've not played RE4 Remake, but I have played a remake that I do think rises to the worthiness of being a Game of the Year contender, and that is Dead Space. I think it's a very clear and obvious nomination. Mm -hmm. And when looking at it, I saw some people trying to argue, and I understand the want to go to it, that because it is a rehash and a reimagining or a remake, even if relatively true to its source material, that it discourages giving praise to games that are original and are trying to do something new, which I think is, if I'm being honest, I think is a little laughable because one thing to note is there is not a single game 
that was nominated this year that is a new IP or a new anything. This is all rehashes of existing yeah. ideas and IP coming around in a new capacity. And I think if you look and you say that Marvel Spider-Man 2 is more deserving just because it happens to be a little less structured off of uh, something as Resident Evil 4 was, the reality for the way I choose to view this is that both Dead Space and Resident Evil 4 are remakes. Mm-hmm. But they take very specific and calculated changes to both their story, their presentation, and their gameplay in an effort to bring them up to modern standards or improve things that could have been better about the originals. And with that in mind, I think that they are new, unique, and interesting ideas within the framework of something existing. But take it a step back. Are you telling me that if someone played Resident Evil 4 for the first time ever this year, by means of the remake, if someone played Dead Space for the by means of the remake for the first time ever this year, and it was one of the best games they've ever played, and they've never experienced it, never experienced anything like it, how does that make that game less deserving than Baldur's Gate 3? How does it make it less deserving than Mario Wonder? Yeah, it doesn't. And I'm glad you said that about sequels, because the reality is... If remakes aren't there because we're discouraging new content, then the slippery slope is now, well, Baldur's Gate can be there because it's not the same developer, so it's not really a sequel. But Spider-Man 2 is the same developer, so it's too close to the original, so it doesn't get nominated. So Hogwarts Legacy's here. But oh no, J.K. Rowling is J.K. Rowling, so Hogwarts Legacy can't be here. So then we need to find another game. And it's just it gets to a ridiculous point. Resident Evil 4 came out this year. It is a game that was released in the year of 2023. So it's nominated for Game of the Year 2023. It's one of the best games that came out. The argument of whether it's better than Hogwarts Legacy or whatever else you think got snubbed, that's a different argument, but it absolutely deserves to stand in the same place. Yeah, you know, when I really started trying to tackle why it should be okay for them to be there, I landed on, if it's truly... When remakes are truly just remakes and they don't change anything besides the graphical presentation, seldom do those games rise to the quality of being so good that people playing them for the first time years after the original release, do they have a similar feeling. And I use that as a very good example for a well-done remake that did not get any kind of award nominations because it was a remake that was trying to be faithful to the original the medieval remake it did not strive to improve anything from the original game at all besides its graphics and the reality is is that in a modern time like today medieval's game design does not hold up enough to be worthy of something that you play and go wow one of the only examples of a game that i think was a remake almost one-to-one uh, but still made a few very small changes. Uh, two examples, actually. Demon Souls and the remake of Shadow of the Colossus. Both of those are Blue Point. Both of those are virtually one-to-one remakes. And both of those games, the original games were so amazing and so revolutionary and are still th- that revolutionary that playing them in a better form that is more or less aiming to completely recreate that experience still shows you just how wonderful they are. So if someone looked at me and said, yeah, even though it doesn't do anything new, realistically, Shadow of the Colossus could have won my game of the year 2017, 2018, whenever it came out, I can actually understand that argument. 
because the original game was interesting and unique enough in the industry that really nobody's copied it in enough of a way that that impact is lessened, even though you're playing it 10 years later. So I, I yeah. think that's kind of where I'm at. Cause you know, I, I think the most interesting game on this list is Baldur's gate three. And it's only because the last Baldur's gate was in like 2001. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I guess technically the second most interesting game on this list is Alan Wake 2, not only because of what it actually does from a game design standpoint, but it's a sequel to a game that came out 13 years ago. <laughs> They're the closest thing to fresh ideas on this entire list. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but to go to the spirit of the question, uh, do you feel like the? I mean, clearly I've brought up that I think um, a very obvious answer to the question of what game do I think should be on the list of the games I've played. I think Dead Space deserves to be there. Uh, but do you feel like there's a game that you feel should have obviously been on this list that didn't land? And if so, what mm. game would you kick off in order to put it there? No, I think Hogwarts Legacy is probably the closest thing that I've played this year but i don't i don't think that beats any of the games on this list i think this list is almost flawless i think if i was gonna if i was reminded of something i'm missing and i'm sure i'm missing something that i'm not remembering but as of right now all i feel is like yeah this is kind of the right list it would be stuff like do i think starfield deserves to be there that would be my big question and no i don't i guess the real question do you think that the list could have had a few more nominees without having to buck another? Or do you think landing on six games is the right call? <laughs> I think adding more games would have been a cop-out. Make a list of six. Because here's the thing, in the end, only one of them wins. So what the fuck does it matter if you're number seven? And here's the thing, right? They they do it in an order. They, they give you the list. So if you're set, let's say they made it ten, right? You know... Oh, they accommodated us. They wanted us to feel heard, but we're not going to win. Right? Imagine if this year Jeff Keighley was like, you know what? We've decided that we're going to change format and we're going to have six, we're going to have seven games. Right? So then they, they, you know, and then Starfield's on the list as number seven. So Bethesda and everyone watching knows, well, they just did that. So the Starfield's here. Right? Is that, is that good? No. Just leave it the way it is. Do six and then move forward. The only game I genuinely, and that also comes from the fact that I haven't played all these games or at least completed. Like I've played Alan Wake 2, not completed, but I understand. Even when I've, from what I've played, I understand why it's here. <laughs> Baldur's Gate 3, having completed it, from what I've played, I completely understand why it's here. Marvel yeah. Spider-Man 2, I understand why it's here. Um, I understand why Tears of the Kingdom is here without having to play it. I am iffy on Wonder. I haven't played it, and I'm not a big Mario fan, so I feel like having a strong opinion about it is unfair and ultimately fruitless. It's a good one. <laughs> uh, and the only game that I am not doubting at all while why it's here, but I just haven't played, is Resident Evil 4. And I do want to see if I can squeeze that in by year end. The only game I can really think of that I think needs to be on this list uh, is Dead Space. Um, because... As we talked about, that game is just as revolutionary today as it was when it came out because somehow, some way, no one has thought to really take any of its ideas and do anything interesting with them. So, um, yeah, I, look, I saw a lot 
a, a lot of talk about Hogwarts Legacy. And I want to tell you, I think Hogwarts Legacy is very well made. I think it's very meticulous. And I understand why people enjoy it. I think it does a lot of things correct. But from what I played of it, as good as I think it was, I, I, I don't think it deserves to be on this list. But one thing that's very important to think about with this list is that this is just the games that people think did something unique and interesting at a far enough ability that it deserves noteworthy. The reality is that Hogwarts Legacy is one of, if not the best-selling game of the year. It probably will get pushed out by Call of Duty because everything does, even when Call of Duty underperforms. But if the only game you beat that the only game that beat you out was Call of Duty, you essentially won the year. Well, it's like it's like I've always said, where like the reality is Fortnite is game of the year every year, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it depends, it, right, it's like always your, what's your metric? And that's uh I think if you move the metric, then it goes down. Like if you want to look at the biggest thing in gaming, it's it's Fortnite. It has been for a long time. If you want to look at something that's not expected, because Fortnite's expected at this point, right? You know what you're getting. You know what you're playing. It still retains high quality and people play it. So if you shift it to something that was unexpected and interesting and different, but then, okay, these games all check that and make sense because you didn't expect these things necessarily. Look, it is what it is. Uh, mm. Let's go ahead and go to the next category, though, because Game of the Year is going to be really contentious. But the reality is, is that it's there. There's one more question, I guess, I'll go ahead and say on here. Uh, we have Porkchop said, seeing the list of Game of the Year nominees, this has to be one of the best years in recent memory. What would you guys say is your top five years of gaming in regards to new release bangers? Uh, dude, I think this list is cl- this year is clearly up there. A yeah. few other obvious years in gaming I want to point to 2011, stacked. My guy, stacked. One of my, it's, I'm not going to put these in an actual order of five, but I think this year, 2011, 2008, killer mm-hmm. year. Holy shit, killer year. Um, oh, three. 2017. Oh, three is a good one. I think oh. that's Half Life 2 and Halo 3, right? Am I mistaken? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big year. You say Halo 2 or Halo 1? I thought it was Halo 2. You keep cutting out, unfortunately. That but that's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... No, 04 was Halo 2. Oh, okay, then I'm thinking of 04, yeah. And then 07 or 08 was Halo 3. Um, I think 07. It was 07. So... 04 at San Andreas, Gran Turismo 4, MGS 3, Half-Life 2, Pokemon Red, Red and Green, Fable, Far Cry, Monster Hunter, Red Dead Revolver... Some good games. Honestly, dude, that might be one right there. That's a pretty stacked list, too. Yeah, that's a solid year. 2004, baby. Red Sox won the World Series and one of the best years for video games. The thing is, is I've noticed that you you tend to get these about four years apart from each other. You know? It's like that tends to be a relative safe rule of like, I don't know if it's just a cycles thing, but it seems like the gaming industry is like, I know it's been a while, but fire! And then they just blast out all their good shit at once. I don't know why it happens that way, but it's just kind of how it happens. Because, I mean, you think 2015 might be the answer instead of 2017. Because you think about Bloodborne, The Witcher 3, Fallout 4, if you're, if you're a big Fallout 4 person. Like, dude, 2015 had some bangers had the order 1886 for me. I love that game. So, I mean, you, you keep looking 2015 had a lot of big games. Uh, Grand Theft Auto five released uh, again. <laughs> 
Arkham Knight came out that year. Uh, Dying Light came out that year. That was a huge thing. Rocket League came out in 2015. Life is Strange came out in 2015. I mean, you have some pretty clear and obvious big games right there alone. So, oh yeah, I think that's a. I think 2015 is going to replace the 2017. I kind of said. I think that's a good year, and it kind of keeps with that. Roughly every four years, you get a pretty crazy banger year. Though I, everyone has to clearly say that this was because of COVID. I don't think there's any reason that for it to believe that it's not because <laughs> of that. All right, facing some technical difficulties, we're going to try and go ahead and uh, work through the rest of this show. All right, I think we're getting close to it. So we have best score in music. We have Alan Wake 2, Baldur's Gate 3, Final Fantasy 16, Hi-Fi Rush, and The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. All reasonable picks. I understand where that's at on here. Uh, music and score in games are very important, but not all games are created equal in how they choose to use it. So I think this is a really cool one. One interesting thing I saw, Chris, Uh, Going back to kind of that opening question, right? Like, what's the importance of uh, the games, uh, game awards to both to us personally and to the industry? Uh, I saw Gene Park tweet about this particular category and say that he was so glad to see Final Fantasy 16 here, not only because it's got impeccable score work, which it does, but also that the entire uh, score for the game was written while the composer was undergoing cr- uh, cancer treatment. And he was saying that if awards are meant to recognize greatness and challenge and all those things, that it is a feat to be able to create something to that degree while you're undergoing such strenuous uh, mm-hmm. physical ailment. Uh, yeah. what, what's kind of your viewpoint on that? Do you think you agree with that notion that in the world of where we're giving importance to these awards, that there is a reasonable thing to look in and say, hey, someone did something amazing under less than ideal situations? Or do you think that it really is best to leave all that out and say, no, which one is objectively best from what we can try and understand? Uh, well, it's, for me personally, I would say you leave it out, right? Because maybe this is insensitive, but I think if that was me, I wouldn't want to win an award because I was sick. I'd want to win an award because I was the best. Yeah. I understand and want to commend him for the fact that he was able to do such a genuinely fucking amazing score while undergoing cancer treatment. But yeah, there is a little bit of that thing. Like we can commend him for his work and under such physical activity while not saying that we gave it to him because of that. I right. think the important part is to say, like, no, you got this because you just clearly had what enough people can agreed to be the best. Um, exactly. While we're on that topic, I'm very curious to see what wins here because Baldur's Gate 3 has such an amazing score. Mm-hmm. But down by the river I is think, my ringtone. I think one thing that's really important to note here between these two is. The structure of Baldur's Gate 3 as a game, I think, has a harder time making the score feel as punctuated (laughs) as it does in something like Final Fantasy 16, where it's a far more scripted and far more linear experience. And that's just a benefit that its type of game has. But I think it, it helps the score stand out, be more notable and 
resonate with you more because it's a little bit more into what's happening. Now, you have that in Baldur's Gate 3 under very specific cutscenes and sections, but since everything is so will you or want you based on your decisions, I almost wonder if that game will be overlooked because the score is dependent. Yeah. I I wish I had more to contribute, but I'm not a huge music person. It's one of those things I recognize when it's really good, but not usually. It's funny because clearly you know uh, whenever something's good enough that you're like, absolutely. Because it's like we always talk about like for anything that you have opinion-wise on Nier Automata, you recognize that it has an absolute banger soundtrack. Absolutely. And yeah. we, we know that you love Persona 5 and Persona 5 Royal, but you also make it a point to say it has an absolutely banging it does. soundtrack. Yeah, I just think in terms of like if something stands out, that's why like for me on this list it would be Baldur's Gate because it stood out. Mm-hmm. But there's an argument that Baldur's Gate, the song that really stuck it out for me, was because we spent 45 hours in one loading screen waiting. So I heard that song repeat over and over again. The down, down. Like I heard it a thousand times and it was good every time. So sure. Well, and you know that. what's funny about that? You're right. But one of the things that you, if you actually want to get music critique about it and going into what makes it a good score is that that is, um, that's the overture. Right, that is the song you hear when creating your character and loading in and then doing all that thing, but that musical melody is reprised often in other pieces. Like when we were playing the other day with uh, me and Donovan, there was a really cool battle sequence that we were going through uh, in the Underdark or the whatever it's called, and they found ways to bring that little melody refrain into it in a different way and punctuate it in a different way so that it acts as a thematic tie to everything that's going on. And that is a well-made score that references itself and builds upon itself for everything that's going on. But, you know, the hard part about that is, do you like music enough to do that, (laughs) to care about that, you know? And some people don't. And some people just notice it whenever they get a step away and say, yeah, this is a banger score. And I really like the music. Uh, For most people like you, I find that it's, do I listen to it outside of the game? Therefore, it's good. Exactly. And I do listen to Nier Automata outside of the game. Yeah, you better. I think we're just going to go ahead and say, look, the game awards are what they are. We'll end up going into our bigger feels of what actually wins and what we agree with. Uh, But we're having some technical difficulties that are going to make this a little too complicated. Can you go through? Hopefully... (laughs) Hopefully, if it's my computer, which I don't think it to be, then we can have that fixed. But if nothing else, Chris's computer will come back to the future um, with a new something. Uh, We're not sure, but hopefully we don't have this problem next week. So we're going to go ahead and round this thing out. We've been going for a long time trying to fight past it. And instead of trying to just brute force through it, we're going to call it what it is. We'll talk more about the Game Awards and everything with it. Uh, If there's any questions we didn't get to, we'll try and get to them next week. This was an irregular episode. So take it for what it is. We appreciate you for joining us. This has been Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. Uh, if you want to follow us and find us on social media, you can find us on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter uh, at Triangle SQRD. You can find us in a Facebook group called Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. Where you can ask to be entered in. We'll gladly have you in there. Or the best way to reach out to us and join many of our other listeners is to go into the Discord, which we have linked in the description below. And... 
uh, join in there so that you can be part of our day-to-day moment-to-moment. Uh, and with that said, Chris is hopping in and out, so I think our problem is getting a little worse here. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining me. Sorry that we had some technical issues, but we did our best to go through it. Uh, if you want to support the show with more than just your time, which we are always so thankful for, head over to patreon.com slash nartech. Consider giving as little as a dollar per month to support the show, like many of the others have. And finally, as a thank you to those who do go in there and support us every month and help make this show possible, we give everyone a shout out. So without further ado, we have Spencer, Brandon Edwards, Alex, Barry Rogers, Stingray, X, It's a Send to Win, Easton328, Awesome Dave1337, Aztec King, Legion69, The Lord Corgi, Baylor Robertson, Mark Schutz, Cypher Primus, Kyle Grimm, Rude Days93, Kevin Bacon Bits, Danny Villiobos, Jehudi MD, No Fate, Josh Ayers, Derek Porter, Donovan Williams, Matthew Green, and Sean Sandaru. Thanks for bearing with us on this weird episode. We'll be back next week, hopefully, with no issues. We'll see you next time. <laughs>